Blank check with Griffin and David. Blank check with Griffin and David. Don't know what to say or to expect. All you need to know is that the name of the show is Blank Check. Tell your brain to tell your arm to tell your hand to move your little podcast. Oh, sure. See, right. I'm like tearing up just like even here. Right? That, is, that is the best scene in the movie. Maybe. Yes, that's probably yeah. the best scene. Now, you said to me as I was getting ready to read off well, my book. I just, I'm, and you can talk, Bill, and like. You said it better be an Italian accent. Now, I love doing a Nolte impression. Right. I've done it too many times on this podcast. Yeah, you have. You've done it many times, but usually you're doing Hulk or Warrior, older Nolte. Bad dad Nick Nolte. Right, exactly. I'm your father, Hulk. Right, 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 right. Right. This is good dad, Nick Nolte. Well, it is. That's true. I mean, Great there, dad. Nick. He really goes above and beyond. We're going to get into this, but there's like a you know chaotic, neutral, lawful, good kind sure, of chart sure. of just like- Of Nolte's. Good, good dad, Nick Nolte, bad dad, Nick Nolte, good movie, bad dad, Nick Nolte. Like okay. it's, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is probably- This is like good dad, good movie, Nick Nolte. I think this is the best good dad, Nick Nolte movie. It's yeah. very interesting. Have and you, it's also probably the best dad he's ever played. It's both. I have a lot of questions about this movie, but do you know, does he look like the, like the guy? Like, how does he get this role? Do you know anything about that? Like, I, I know he was obviously a big star at the time. He had recently been People's Sexiest Man Alive. Yeah, it's so um, But like... And, the, and, and he hasn't done Cape Fear yet? Or has Cape he done Cape Fear... Was the, the year, year before? before. The year yeah, before. you know, okay. you know, he's yeah, he's had a good bad dad, Nick Nolte. You know, he got right. his Oscar nom for the Prince of Tides the year before. Yeah. Like he's he's at kind of peak movie stardom. Peak, yeah. like here, he's the 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 burly sort right. of slightly older guy that that you know moms love and you like know. he's finally hit his ideal form in his early fifties. His yeah. next film is I'll Do Anything, and he's <sighs> and he's quite vulnerable. Yes, yeah. that he's but, unafraid, like, like hulking of, yes. but vulnerable, right? Which is not, you know, which is not a thing you get that often. In no, I think he's, he's he's always had those the guts to be vulnerable. I feel in like. in yeah. the '90s he finally hit that perfect balance, and I think it's also a thing of just the way he aged. You know, mm, right. like this is when he's still aging well, mm -hmm. but how much more interesting his face becomes when there's a little more wear and tear on it. Yeah, yeah. When you look at him, like you know, in the '70s when he's very young. And he's kind of pretty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he breaks. He's beautiful. Because yeah. he's a very yeah. uh, angular face and, you know, he's got a big jaw. Like, yeah. But he's got the Joel Edgerton thing where he's like, he's very pretty, but also has this kind of like craggy mountain bone structure. Right. Mm -hmm. It's the it's the chin. It's the rich man, poor man. That's his big breakout. Right. You know, he's got, he's got a, yeah. It's a, he's, it's a 70s handsome. Yes. It's an interesting handsome. Right. But yeah. then once he starts getting, you know, some lines in the face, yeah, it's yeah. like incredible. And then there's like 10 years between this movie and Hulk yeah. in which it feels like he's lived eight lifetimes. Like he just like is aging so well, so well, so well, and then suddenly becomes the most damaged looking man in America. I, I love him. How I do, do you too. Feel about Nolte? I love him. Yeah. I believe uh, in Rich Man, Poor Man, his character's name was Tom, right? Uh, let me just, Yes. Um, I remember in Turkey watching Rich Man, Poor Man as like a six-year-old or mm -hmm. something like that. And, sure. you know, it was one of the very few things that was on TV, so you just watched it. Um, I mean, again, hard I, to overstate. Like, this thing was huge. It was a huge miniseries. People, huge. I mean, you know, like, it's like that sort of like North and South or Roots or like 
back yeah. in the day when those things really were watched by everybody. I'm sorry, I just can't get over this. You Lace. said his his name is Tom. The character's name is not Richard Mann. <laughs> I always assumed that was the premise of right. the <laughs> miniseries. Complete your anecdote. No, no, no that's Peter Strauss. I, that I have no anecdote. It's just like you just that that was your first introduction. Like I kind of he's one of those actors I believe he that is, I kind of like he is known the poor since man. I know myself. Yeah, right. he sure. is he is the titular. He is the poor man of yeah. Richard Mann. Uh, right, he's right. one of my favorite dudes. I'm always happy when we crack into an old tea. But I was watching this last night going, oh boy, David is going to expect me to do an Italian Nolte impression. And I was like staying up late Here's going who like, sounds like this. No one, no one in the history the of Earth. And I was like trying to do the exercise of like, let me do a little Nolte. I'm like, Nolte, Nolte. And I was like, let me do a little Italian. Pizza pie. And then I was like trying to combine right. them and, and I it's couldn't. Like two magnets. They're right. just like, oh, you get the spaghetti. And like, I was like, it was, I couldn't. Melt I mean, the two. Ge- Geppetto kind of sounds like yeah, it. Yeah, it, it's that's fair. It's like I just I knew very little going into this film. I thought of it. I, its rep to me was stodgy. That it was a sort of like inspirational. You look at the poster for this film, story. and it looks like uh, you feel like it's a movie. People, it was like a punchline title in the nineties, like oh yeah. Lorenzo's Oil. I mean, you know, the, like the, boring. The trailer was terrible. It yeah. was called Lorenzo's Oil. The, right. The, uh, you know, and if you don't know what Lorenzo's Oil is, you're like, why the fuck would you call yeah, your movie right, Lorenzo's ex- Oil? And so I, that's what right. I knew going in. But then I flick this on, and I'm like, am I on a, like a different audio track? Like, what? what's Nick Nolte's? Who, who's dubbing Nick Nolte right now? You watch it's this. like fucking Burt Lancaster in The Leopard or something. And then I realized, like, no, he's just playing an Italian man. A very Italian yes. man. Now I knew, okay, the title's got Lorenzo in it. Sure, I, I peeped the Wikipedia page before I watched the movie. I knew the character had a very Italian name, right? Yeah, right. I don't understand that he was going to be playing an Italian man, like a man whose first language was Italian. And you watch this movie the night before I do. We're in the middle of a text thread between you and I and my brother, past and future guest, James E. Newman. Yep. We're texting about the movie Warrior, which is one of my brother's favorite movies the last 10 years. Yes, Warrior, and you were. Movie. How do you feel about Warrior, Bill I like Warrior. I need to see it again, though. That's good. I love Warrior, and I have to say, rewatched it a little last night. Mm. Even better than I remember. Just, just kind of to be in a Nolte zone or to get hyped for the Way Back? Or? Nolte zone, Insomnia zone, Way Back zone. I'm, I'm all of it, right? It was a, a cross-triangulation sure. kind of thing. I was watching some of it. Uh, reminded how hard that movie honks. But James uh, and you and I were texting about uh, Gavin O'Connor mm-hmm. and Warrior in the uh, anticipation of... Uh, the what the I assume back. will be the blockbuster released of the way back, and you said Griffin, you have to get ready for Nolte's accent. Right, in this I movie. did spoil yeah. you on the accent. You said I oh, went Nolte whatever. accent. What's he doing? Southern? <laughs> right. Like I immediately thought, what accent could Nick Nolte be attempting to do? A man with that distinctive a voice, who I've never really witnessed trying to camouflage that voice in any major way. It's true. Usually he's just doing himself. Yeah, that's yeah, what I'm you're paying for. I remember for. Jefferson in Paris, like well, how, how he speaks in that. Never I've seen that. Never but, seen Jefferson in Paris. Uh, a good movie. I really like it. Um, I can't remember what his voice is like in that. But it's one of those. He's got a great voice, though. That's he's got, I mean, yeah. that's an incredible voice. I think he falls into kind of that Sean Connery camp where it's like, it doesn't matter if he's playing a Russian. He should sound like Sean Connery. Like Nick Nolte's voice is a special effect. He doesn't need to sound like the real person. And then you say he's playing Italian. Yeah. And my mind reels. And then I'm like. And I didn't even specify Italian, Italian. Like maybe I thought maybe you think Italian, American. No. No, but you said Italian. I did say Italian. Right. right. And then you went, I think it works. Like it pretty much works. 
Yeah. And even with that, I sat there and was like, there's no way this works. And every single scene, every time he opened his mouth, I was like, God damn it, he's just making this work. Yeah, it totally works. It shouldn't work at all. Because I think that accent makes the script work. Because and this is a yes. this is a very George Miller thing. I mean, you'll see it in, you know, like Fury Road. Um you know, the lines sound like they're out of Melville. I mean, they're very operatic. Yes. yes. And and the thing is, like And the whole movie's operatic and the that whole character movie. in particular is oh, yeah. the most operatic. Like I'm not sure that right. part would work if you didn't have kind of no. a, a, a thick accent to go with it because it doesn't like in ordinary conversation, those lines don't make sense. No, they don't. I'm trying to imagine like Roberto Benigni playing this role. I'm trying to imagine like you know like a stereotypically like, Italian. Like, what man. is like William Hurt doing this? You know, sure. Like I'm like trying to think of someone who is sort of at like a, a kind of nulty parallel at that point in the studio system in the 90s, and it doesn't work with someone who is how do I even say a, this? A Pacino. I mean, Pacino kind of like claws his way back to respectability right around this time. It's true. Right. Pacino could have done it. But it is that I mean, weird thing where you're like, Pacino's getting bombastic at this point. Yeah. Nolte is that exact right balance of like that weird, like aggressive masculinity and a very yeah. quiet, subtle vulnerability where Pacino probably would have been too big and someone like Hurt would have been like too simmering. Yeah. And you need someone who can do like, you know, like at times like Fritz Lang acting in this movie. There's, like, the scene where he's – I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but the scene where he's, like, reading all the uh, the papers of the diagnosis for the yeah. first time and then he falls down the stairs. I mean, that's the best scene in the movie. That's, or, I love that not scene the best, so. but what, that is, that, that's the that scene is where you're the like, best scene in the- oh, my God. Yeah. Like, what, like, well, that's the scene where you're that's like – That's the scene where this is George Miller. This is George Miller. Yeah. Right. And this is a fucking masterpiece. <laughs> yes. I mean, I love this film. I love this film. That's one reason we had you on. We're, we're going to comprehension. We're going to back up. Yeah. I'm going to introduce the show and then I'm going to set this table cleanly. Because this, of course, is Blank Check with Griffin David. It's a mm-hmm. podcast about filmographies, directors who have massive success early on in their careers. They give it a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion projects they want. And sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes those checks fund a new type of oil. Right. And uh, this is a main series on the films of George Miller. It is called Mad Pod Fury Cast. Mm-hmm. And today we are talking about Lorenzo's Oil, which the IMDb uh, trivia section States, and I, I think it was sort of like I had to run the calculus in my head, but both of these are correct. The only George Miller film completely devoid of fantastical elements. Right. It's the only film of his, even though the film is very heightened. Sure. It is a film that takes place entirely in our real world. Because even, right, even your Witches of Eastwick or whatever have the sort of the supernatural. It's got a magic. Yes. It's yes. got in Satan. It. It does. Yeah. Satan is there. Yeah. 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 Uh, witches and And he's the fantastical. Devil. He's not real. Right. But. Right. No, yes. No, right. Yes. Satan definitely isn't real. <laughs> um, but also, they they said uh, this is the only film of his that is not part of a franchise, which you have to be a little you unconventional. You mean because Witches of Eastwick is like adapted from a book? Is that the thinking? Yeah, you're like the book. A, a book that got a sequel. book has a sequel. The thing's been readapted a number of times. You're like, in a right. way, Witches of Eastwick as a property. It is a weird sort of piece of intellectual property. You're right. right. You're it's right. like a piece of intellectual property. Plus, it's in the Updike verse. You right. know, if anyone ever, if right, Disney right. wanted to be like, all right, coming to Hulu, yeah. Updike right. verse, so baby. So that one's obviously a little <laughs> bit more of a stretch, but then it's like four Mad Maxes, sure, the babes, babe, yes. and two Happy Feet. This is like such an anomaly in his career, and I had always, uh, as I got more and more into George Miller over the years, like looked this up, see the poster, and go, 
this is so strange that George Miller in the early 90s, after like a five-year break or whatever, right. just inexplicably made what appears to be a sub-Marvin's Room movie. <laughs> sure. You know, right. like everything about it and even just like, oh, it got like the token Susan Sarandon Best Actress nomination. I'm sure this is one of those like six movies that she just got an automatic she, nomination She was for. in the early 90s sort of, right, like she would always show up. She yeah. had like that run where it was like by the time she won – uh, right, it was like she was Amy Adams, she was Kate Winslet, think, she was whoever. Well, yeah, that was her fifth nomination. So right. yeah, Atlantic City, Thelma and Louise, Lorenzo Zoyle, The Client, and then she wins for right. Dead Man Walking. So right. I was just like, everything about this movie feels so generic, I can't understand how this guy made this. And then at some point I looked up the trailer, I think after we had started this podcast and knew we're probably going to talk about George Miller someday. Uh-huh. And the trailer is not good. Terrible trailer. But also... The trailer cannot hide how weird the movie is. The trailer does not represent the movie well, but the trailer is almost entirely wordless, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's set to opera music, and yes. it like is showing off all the crazy camera moves yep. and the sort the of frenetic energy, rule. right? Yeah. And the like heightened, sort of exaggerated performances and everything. It doesn't make sense in context, but it became very clear to me. Okay, this is a George Miller movie. This isn't him putting on some other hat. But then the thing that stuck in my mind. As we've talked about doing him over the years, as he came close twice to winning our March Madness bracket, and as we finally settled on doing him, and we were looking at the spreadsheet trying to pick guests, I went, I think Bilga tweets about this movie all the time. I had it in the back of my head. And I went, let me just do a quick search. And I, I looked it up, and sure enough, multiple tweets, including you, about once a year, I would say. <laughs> Whether it's in an at tweet, it's a. I just want to remind everyone, you have gone on the record extensively saying it is the single most underrated movie of the 90s. Possibly of all time. I mean, I love this. I you love also this. once called it possibly the greatest film of the 1990s. I mean, I, I it's, it's definitely a contender. I, you know, the 1990s were... I mean, that was a good decade for me. Uh, there are a lot of contenders there. Here, here's... I'm just... this. You tweeted this not just last year. Here, your favorite films of the 90s. Beau Trevi, oh, Heat, my. Lorenzo's Oil. <laughs> yeah. Three great movies. Yeah. The Sheltering Sky, The Thin Red Line, love it. Yeah. yeah. I know you're a big Bertolucci guy. Yeah. Uh, Titanic and Underground. Great, great seven. That's I mean, that's seven. those. And it, though you're you're sort you of almost saying them. like that's the, if you're looking for the Bill Gabiri experience. I like, mean, that's yeah. like, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's like, the you know, at least half of those movies could be on an all-time list for me. Sure. You yeah. once called it the best Christmas movie? Because it's great I, and there's a yeah. Christmas tree in it at there, some point. There is, there is a Christmas tree in one shot. Um, uh, so you're looking, you essentially want to insert Lorenzo's oil into the conversation of best blank of all time. The most blank. It is definitely a most movie. Um, it's also, I think. Would it I mean, be like your sight and sound 10? You know, if you were doing one of those. I don't know. That's tougher. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean that's, yeah. You know, there are, I mean, there. you know. Basically, your take is like, I love this movie more than anyone I've ever met. Like, I may be actually the biggest Lorenzo Zoyle fan. I just Zorro knew that. Fan. I was like, I think it's Bilga, but I know there is someone who has clearly carved out a corner for themselves as the world's biggest Lorenzo Zoyle <laughs> fan. <laughs> well, part of it is also because it's so undervalued. Yeah. And, and part of it is, all, I mean, and, and it's undervalued in part because of all the things that we just talked about. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it was not marketed well. It doesn't. Sure. It wasn't seem, a very big. Event. And also, it's given, and, and yeah. also, if you know what it's about, you're like, oh, I don't want to see that at all. Like, it yeah, right. No, right. no. It seems like it'll be sort of grueling right. and yeah. challenging. And, and which, I know a lot of people yes. who haven't seen it who love George Miller, and I'm kind of like, 
just like see this movie. It's yes. really good, and it's also really personal. Yeah. You know? Yes. Yes. I mean, it, it, well, right. That's the thing is that as I'm watching it, I remember like, oh, right, he's a doctor. I mean, there were two things that immediately hit me once I started watching this movie in this genre that is very unappealing to me yeah. of uh, a sort of uh, a medical issue you know, like weepy on its face, right? The Mm -hmm. worst example of which, or or the most generic example of which is like Harrison Ford Extraordinary Measures, right? Right, right, It's like, I'm going to find this cure. I'm like, don't want to watch this movie. Seems punishing and also kind of maudlin and generic. So for me to want to watch a film like this where you know even in its best execution, it is going to be so fucking painful and grueling to live through this process, I have to know that it's so fucking good, right? Uh, so I, I, even though I, I was sold on the idea of I'm probably going to like this movie, I go into it a little bit guarded. Mm. And then the first two things I recognize almost immediately because we're watching all these movies in order and we're like living in this Miller headspace is, oh, right. This guy actually has a medical degree, (laughs) worked as a doctor. This immediately feels different than any other time I've seen this movie because of how much more intimately this guy understands all the different dynamics of play. It's very right. And the it, actual it, fucking science of play. That, but also very good at dramatizing like the very alienating experience of talking to a doctor who's trying to explain to you like why your son's brain is melting. Yeah. And also understanding both sides of that death. Yes, 100%. Yeah. Right, Absolutely. being yeah. the person yeah. supporting the patient, being the doctor. I mean, yeah. it's, it's got such a nuanced, complicated understanding of that entire landscape. But the other thing is, oh, right, this is the movie... He makes two films after he makes his movie where his best friend and closest collaborator dies. Right. And he constantly talks about that being an enormous grief in his life. Like a a really, really long, drawn-out grieving process. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, you know, he – he's not reticent to talk about uh, Byron Kennedy, but it always feels like – it's tinged with this, like, I, I wish I could have prevented that, even though there's nothing he could have done. Yeah. And that desire in this movie feels very personal and palpable to him. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's he, he understands the medicine, but he also understands grief and, yeah. and the helplessness that comes with kind of the other side. And um, I, I just love, I mean, the fact that the film is so bold in its style and kind of its effect... Um, and yet is also extremely compassionate, even though, I mean, I think the, the real doctors that were portrayed in the film, you know, the, b- uh, under pseudonyms. The guy, the guy um, that Yusinov is based on was furious. Yeah. I think he called is it scurrilous. Because he feels like Yusinov becomes too much of like an impediment in the later part of the movie. Is like, is that, was that his Well, maybe, maybe uh, look issue? it up, David. That's I, I, I tried to and I couldn't really? find anything I mean, I particular. Think, I think it, well, I think it's... Uh, uh, I, I don't think that character is a is a one to one sure kind of representation because it's which is why I think they changed yeah. the name. I think he right. oh, yeah. did it out of a sense of my let's, let's my see. sense. My presumption is that he changed the name not because it's a composite as much as because he is using this character to dramatic ends and he doesn't exactly. want to. Yeah, right. He thinks that it's too it's too negative. That he's like I was not as like sort of obstinate or whatever yeah. as that movie is. But I don't think Usnau's character really is that obstinate. He's not. He's actually, He's. I, I find him very compassionate and very touching. I get it that if you're the, if you're the real person, you might. You know. right. But that's why he changed the name. Yeah, he changed, yeah. He changed the name. And also, like, he's, he's dramatizing stuff. So right. in many cases, I mean, there has to be some, you know, oppositional figures and things like that. Right. And, and there's also this whole, I mean— 
meta narrative isn't quite the the right word, but you know there is this you know this idea that in some ways what we're also watching is you know related to some extent to to the AIDS crisis, yeah. right? And which yes. is referenced like once in the movie. Yeah, but this but, is coming but at the yeah. time. People were very much aware that like that is kind of a sub narrative happening here. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, you know, this is a very symbolic character. And the fact that he can do so much with that character and still yeah. make me feel bad for the guy. I think it's a really, yeah. really skillful performance. I, I think, would love I, I to think, be played uh, by Peter Ustinov. That would be yeah, fucking man. great. Have you guys seen those videos? I don't know what the origin is. It must be from some, like, old BBC special or something. It doesn't even look that old because it's him at an older age. I mean, I think it's him in the 90s. Um where he, like, is telling old showbiz stories and he does impressions of all the actors he used to work with. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen these? No. They're, I, I, for whatever reason, will stumble upon them on YouTube every once in a while through uh, that tricky algorithm. <laughs> and then we'll end up down a rabbit hole. But he'll be, like, telling stories about working with Charles Lawton. <laughs> I mean, he's just sort of, like, dishing goss on, on that whole generation of uh, actors. Uh-huh. And he does the most insane impressions of everyone including a Jim Carrey level of his face transforms when he does the person. I wonder if he ever did a, a Nick Nolte and Lorenzo I mean, that's, it makes me wonder. Because he'll, like, he, Peter Ustoff does not look like Charles Lawton. Yeah. And he'll tell a story about being on set with Charles Lawton, and he'll be like, and then Lawton said, and then his face just turns into Charles mm-hmm. Lawton. It looks like those dumb deepfake videos that now circulate. Yes. Where a comedian know, is doing an impression of a person. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Yusnov rules. It's an Great awesome guy. person to have play you. And I think he's playing this character very responsibly, understanding that it is not mm-hmm. a villain. Yeah. Even though he is a dramatic obstruction for much of the film. Man, he didn't die for another 12 years after this. Peter Yusnov really stuck around. He, you know. Yep. But he, I mean, did he work much after this film? Uh, that's a good question. The second he came on screen, yeah. it made me realize I, I don't think I've ever seen Yusinov at this age. He did stuff. I mean, I think he took little roles, you know. Okay. Uh, his last, like, on-screen role is the Joseph Fiennes Luther biopic. Don't forget. Oh, right. Don't forget Luther. Pilga. <laughs> um, Pilga yes. Beery from Vulture. Uh, the last two times you've been on this show, first of all, welcome to the Three Timers Club. Hello. But the last two times you've been on this show uh, were Christopher Nolan and Michael Mann, who are very loudly two of your favorite filmmakers and people you've written about extensively and thought about yeah. deeply. And then this movie you uh, vouch for uh, uh, very hard. Right. But are is, you a big Miller is guy? Is Miller a big guy for you in general? Or is it really this film that stands head and shoulders above the rest of the filmography? Oh, I mean, I, I love Miller, but like this is the movie that made me fall in love with George Miller. Sure. Um, at the time that I, at we the time that I saw, yeah, you we saw this about when this. you were in college. I saw this yeah. when I was in college, and I saw it out of a sense of duty. It wasn't like, oh yeah, I want to go see Lorenzo's Oil. I had yeah. a, a friend and I had started a um, an arts and culture magazine, and I was, you know, I had appointed myself film critic. Congratulations! And, and it was coming out. Uh, you know, this was coming out, and you know, I we we had some invites to press screenings, but not for this one, if I remember correctly. Uh, so I like went out by myself mm-hmm. on a. Uh, you know, one weekend, you know, afternoon or evening to 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 like the local multiplex and sat in the theater where I think I bu- I was the only other person. Like it was like maybe two people. <laughs> yeah, um, this was not a hit. This film. not a hit. No. Yeah, and it was like opening weekend. Um, and kind of was just like I well, I guess I have to fucking see Lorenzo's Oil because that's one of the movies opening. Right. So I went and saw it, 
and, and with I, the I, sense of like nine to five grind, like right, uh, got a right. clock in at Lorenzo's movie. Oil. Right, yeah. right, exactly. Um, and I and I had seen Mad Max as a kid, mm-hmm. but like it hadn't like the first Mad Max, and it hadn't made like that much of an impression on me. You know, I just, I mean, I I think I enjoyed it, but. You know, I didn't really even make the connection. Sure. Um, because at the time, there was another George Miller. <laughs> There's also this. Do you remember this? The man from Snowy River, George Miller, also Australian. Huh. Uh, frozen Assets, George Miller. Whoa. It's just funny for, for because for a long time, we actually thought they, they were the same guy. Sure. Right, of course, why yeah. not? They seem like they're making yeah. the same kinds of movies. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, yeah, of course. He made Andre, the movie right. with the seal. Yeah. I saw what? Andre. Remember Andre? And he has no like middle initial. He is just George Miller. It's so Roman funny to think that they were like our kids have been friends that, with that like George chimpanzees. Yeah. yeah, he did yeah. die. He, yeah. No, he had the no no initials. Wow. But they were just like I don't know. Could if what could a kid be friends with? They're just like walking around a zoo, and someone sees a seal. I'm like, sure, let's do a seal. Nineties <laughs> had a ton of. She's gonna have to be on a dock the whole time. A kid and an animal, <laughs> and, you, you know, know in a trouble. small town, and the kid's either on vacation or it's a single parent or something. Light hijinks, very <laughs> yeah, light, right. sort of velvet glove hijinks. And then you save the community center, and yeah. like, woof, great. You know what's one of those movies? I, we'll, we'll get back to Lorenzo's Oil in a moment uh, and then talk about it for the rest of this episode. But one of those movies where I'm just like, what a weird series of things that culturally led up to this being a project that was greenlit. The live-action mid-'90s flipper movie starring Elijah, Elijah Wood, Wood and, and Paul, Paul Hogan. Hogan. Right. <laughs> it's true, You're which like, my grandmother took me to see in the theater, I remember very clearly. She was like, this is the movie for a grandma and her grandson. Here's this weird guy who suddenly became like an overnight pop culture phenomenon. Had You're these, talking about Paul Hogan. Yeah, these right. two massive <laughs> hit films. Then like no one really knew what to do with him afterwards, including himself. And most of his projects are self-started. And, that's and it's one like, of the- you should play a salty guy, right? right? Like, oh, wait, you're going like, to wear a Hawaiian shirt and drive a boat? Paul Hogan, call him up. That's like the very tail end of his studio run where he's like, I don't know, just put me in a flipper movie. <laughs> like, I'm not going to write a script for myself. Put me in a goddamn flipper movie. Elijah Wood is just at the precipice of graduating to, to like- puberty. Right. Yeah, like, he, he's sort of on the precipice of being, like, post-child star. Yeah. And then it's that era where they're just like, oh- any 60s television show right. still airs on repeats enough that it has name recognition with five-year-olds. Right. <laughs> like, it's insane. Why would I have known what Flipper was? I don't know. I don't know why. Well, you knew because you knew from Dolphins. I knew from I Dolphins. I don't know. I had certainly never seen Flipper. Flipper was on TV pretty regularly when I was a kid. I'm a little older than you yeah. guys. But, um. But, like, it was like the, you know, you, you came home, uh, you know, and at 3 p.m. or 3.30 right. p.m., like, that was on TV, I, along with, you know, the old Batman. Yes. Know. Yeah, old I, Batman. I fully remember you know, Flipper. Andy Griffith. Yes. Know, I, I remember Flip, Flipper yeah. rerunning alongside yeah. all those shows, usually at after-school times, yeah. and it was constantly the show that I just clicked past on the remote. Right. Who, right. Who's the villain in the Flipper movie, though? Who's the uh, actor? Yeah. I mean, apart from, like, I assume society is a villain in Jürgen Prochnow. I'm going to guess Jürgen Prochnow. It's a strong guess, but no. The American. only thing I remember strongly about Flipper is Paul Hogan forces Elijah Wood to smoke a, an entire cigar. <laughs> and then Elijah Wood so vomits like he's in a bucket. <laughs> yeah, so th- when you say villain, that's what immediately comes to mind. A deeply traumatizing uh, Jonathan thing. Banks plays the villain in Flipper, oh. which is just, it just sounds good. That, I, mean, I saw that movie. I have no memory of Jonathan Banks. That rules. But, uh, you know. And who, Kiristami directed that? Who directed the flipper? <laughs> yeah, that was a curious. Uh, a guy called Alan Shapiro directed it. Wow. 
uh, who sounds like, I don't know, someone who takes your name as you enter your agent's office or something. Sure. I don't know. So yeah, you think yeah. George Miller might be the same guy who directed Andre. <laughs> Andre. Right, as you're walking into oil, right? Yeah. You're like, I don't know. He made Mad Max. He made yeah, Andre. Like, yeah. like, Andre no, the Champagne of Flippers. Yeah, there's no sense in my head. Oh, yeah, this is, this is like, an auteur. Uh, this is right. an auteur I need to pay attention right. to. And I hadn't seen Road Warrior at the time. And That's funny. That had just passed you by. That is just, I mean, yeah. I remember I remember opening yeah, I know, and being a also, thing, and I just hadn't seen and it. And you hadn't seen Thunderdome, hadn't and seen you hadn't seen Witches of Eastwick, which was a pretty big I, hit. I, I had seen Witches yeah, of Eastwick. Yeah, that makes but, sense to But, me. like, yeah. you know, it wasn't a movie I particularly cared for. And it's um, a guy whose career at this point is three films all in the same franchise. Three Australian car exploitation movies. Yeah. Which, for right. me, growing up, I was like, I watched parts of these movies on TV all the time, and it wasn't until years later that I sat down and, like, distinctly interpreted them as separate things. Mad Max just sort of felt like a mash of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then, like, Witches of Eastwick, which you're like, oh, that's like an an above average studio comedy. That's like a good studio comedy. But it doesn't feel like that guy is defining himself as, like... That was a very star-driven movie. Yeah. Nicholson and and Cher and Michelle... You know, like... Susan Sarandon. Susan Sarandon again. You know, like, yeah. You don't think of that as a Miller movie so much. Yeah. So you sit down ready for your plate of broccoli. You have no strong feelings on Miller either way. Right. And the movie starts. And, I mean, Universal fairly, logo. Yeah, Universal logo. The opening scenes in the Camaros where you're kind of like, what is happening? But um, Yeah, that is, actually, the opening is kind of amazing. It's, yeah. Friedkin, it is, it's Friedkin-esque. It's kind is. of yes. like, I am going to start this movie in a place where you have no anticipation. Right. You don't right. think this is going to be in the movie and it's not going to be terribly relevant to the movie, no. but it's very crucial to the sort of yeah. soul of this character, especially the, yeah. the yeah. Nick Nolte. But I was certainly dreading when you get to that opening, you go, oh God, is he going to catch an illness from the fact that he and oh, his sure, family Jesus. were in? Sure. Uh-huh. Right. So I'm sitting there like clenched like from that opening as as beautiful and well done as I think right. it is. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh God, is that is that the narrative of this thing? Right. Um, and no. and then, uh, but but fairly quickly, I become aware that I'm watching something that is nothing like what I anticipated. Right. Yeah. And that's the thing that I mean. That's the thing that I, why I'm always so kind of militant about this movie because it really is like just this, this like high operatic sense of style in it is there from frame one. Yeah. Like it does not stop. It stops at one point, but very pointedly stops. But like it really just never lets up. Yes, um, and, yes. And and that sense of style, like suddenly I was completely just just overwhelmed by this thing. And it was, you know, it's still to this day one of the greatest, you know, movie going experiences I've ever had. And, and after I after I saw it, I was just like, oh my God, what the fuck was that? And of course I immediately went and like rented Road Warrior and stuff. And I watching Road Warrior, I'm like, yeah. oh, this is actually kind of the same aesthetic. Like this mm-hmm. is yes. this is very much his imprint. And at the time, I think in my review at the time, I said something like you know, Mad Max is like uh, uh, that. That Lorenzo Zoil is basically like you know the Road Warrior aesthetic enters yes. the real world. There are you know? camera movements in this movie that reminded me of Fury Road. Like he, this Absolutely. is him, right? Yeah, you know, and end of yes, prior films, obviously, but like you know, just that like thing in the library where yeah. it's like God is you know yeah. coming down to look on this woman. Yeah. Essentially, you you cannot beat it out of this guy. Yeah. You know, no, I mean, and not only the, yeah, you get the sense that he fundamentally could not make an anonymous film as hard yeah. as he tried. Sure, like I think this movie is actually more stylized than any of his other movies too, except maybe 
Fury Road. Fury Road, maybe yeah. just because it has all it, it, on top of its the Fury Fury of yeah. the Mad Max stuff. It's got the speed ramping yeah, and yeah, the, yeah. the, the, the colors. I also want to remind the panel that Babe was a pig in a city, <laughs> populated. That's, but that's the thing by little animals who wear little clothes. The, the thing is, that Babe is a great movie about a talking pig. Yes, and you're like, Everyone's I like, mean, this is pretty out there, and it worked. Right, and then Got he's it, like, template you set. don't even know how fucking out there right. this pig can be. I'm right. gonna take him to the city, and you're gonna you're gonna cry yeah. and scream. Yeah, you want yeah. a chimpanzee wearing <laughs> you, a three piece? <laughs> I want children to never want to go to a movie theater again. Right. Animals somehow paying rent in a flop house. I mean, we'll get to this, but it's just so crazy the leap that Babe Pig in the City makes where it's oh, like, yeah. Babe won. Here are animals. What if a pig wanted to be a sheepdog? You're like, insane. We all have, <laughs> We all play that mind game. What if the animals are talking to each other and we can't hear it? But they move like animals and they're not doing people things. And then Babe 2 is like, no, they have a little city. They have a little city where animals rule. So straight. Have you ever, a little animal city. Have you ever met Miller? Like have you ever interacted no, with him? Because I, I feel like with Nolan and Man, you 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 know, we discussed both times you've interacted with those. No, I, I've like, never interacted with Nolan. Um, oh no, you oh, never did like no, a Q and A with him. I no, I've never that. done a Q and A with him. You should I, I do want. a Q and A with him. Come on, yeah. come on, tenants come up on, this do year. a Q and A. I'm going to send Warner tried, Brothers an email. I have tried to. I know. Um, sure well, I, at, the, at the Village Voice, I came very close. Uh-huh. Um, he just doesn't do a lot. It, of it stuff. is my yeah. understanding that Christopher Nolan hates New York Magazine. Really? <laughs> David Edelstein hates his movies. Wow. Um, but uh, I, he feels like someone who reads The Atlantic. It just feels like in that kind of like calm okay. middle. You know what I mean? Like he doesn't know who I am, but maybe the Atlantic will catch his eye. What if Christopher Nolan's a blankie and yeah, this episode right. drops him, all three of us get like a DM, a group oh, hi, DM. Mate. Yeah. Well, I'd love to be on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> you guys, who, who won March Madness? It's too bad Tom Green lost. Yeah. I would have done Freddie Godfinger. <laughs> but you've never, you've never talked to Miller. I've never talked to Miller. I was supposed to interview him uh, right before Fury Road came out and then the interview got canceled. Sure. So, um, and that, I mean, it's not like he makes that many movies, so it's no, not like there are a ton of opportunities. That's the thing about almost every project he's picked, including this one, you know, this like you said, it's a five years after Witches of Eastwick. You're like, yeah. why was this the film he zeroed in on of all of all you know for his fifth film and his second non Mad Max movie? Well, right to contextualize it's a little bit three Mad Maxes, which are just this thing yeah. that grows and grows, right? This like sort of master he has to serve, and I think serves uh, with pleasure. Oh. But the third film is then tainted by the the with the grief and the loss of. Uh, Byron Kennedy. And his first film he makes fully on his own is the only film that he really made properly within the American studio system and also as just like a director being hired rather than someone who is fully developing the thing. Uh, yeah, out of I think his heart it's the mind. only movie he didn't write, right? I can't remember yes. if he wrote The Happy Feast. No, I think no, he, he did. did. He yeah, did. So Everything I think, else I think, is so fully his Eastwick blood. Eastwick is the only one he's not credited as a screenwriter. Mm. And he talked extensively, and I'm sure we talk about this on the episode, that. Uh, uh, Eastwick was a very difficult process for him uh, the first time he was dealing with like notes you know and studio pressures and that Nicholson insulated him from it a lot mm. and sort of taught him to stand up for himself but he had weirdly like developed this kind of like you know Miyazaki of Australia sort of <laughs> career where he just like got to do everything exactly the way he wanted it you know because he he raised the money himself he had the same collaborators. He had a sort of workflow and everything. Um, and that was the first time that he was having to, like, serve other yeah. people. And then he doesn't make a movie for five years. And he comes back with this, which does feel like a sort of 
time-delayed processing of yeah. the, the sort of uh, everything he was going through during Beyond Thunderdome and Witches <laughs> of Eastwick. Then with some time to rest, I think he gets divorced in between these two movies also. Is that possible? Is that, Is that possible? Uh, I think he gets divorced between Eastwick and Lorenzo. I, I can't remember, but he married Margaret Sixel, who he's right. married to now, in 95. So it mm. sounds about right. Yeah. Which is, you know. Um, Lorenzo's Oil. Lorenzo's so you've seen Lorenzo's Oil in 1992. You have a profound experience with it. How many times have you seen this movie, would you I've say? Seen it many times. Many I've times. Seen it more than 20, I would say. That is a lot of times. Yeah. I'm not, I don't mean 20. that judgmentally. It's no, just very interesting impressed. to me. I, used, I mean, it was in theaters for like, you know, three weeks or yeah, something. Right. So it was yeah. brief. It was in and out. Yeah. yeah but I bought the Laserdisc. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I watched it. La- and I also. Did you have it, to flip that sucker? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 135 minutes. That's. Must have been flipping you know. like Paul Hogan. <laughs> Smoking <laughs> but I will say while we were talking, I looked up if you can buy a flipper laser disc. Because yeah. I was. You, oh, you got to flip sure, those. Sure, sure. Five bucks. Yeah. 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 If you wanted. Commentary? I, I have one still. I think I have the laser disc for this still. I mean, I also for have this, a DVD. Right? Yeah. But this is also one of those movies. That I, I think would it doesn't show have a Blu-ray. It just was announced. Oh, just Kino Lorber is oh, cool. uh, just announced one that Good I think them. will hopefully be coming out around the time this episode airs. That's cool. Soon Good for them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's. Um, I mean, uh, this is one of those movies that I would show people. Yeah. Like if you were my girlfriend, you would sure. have to watch this movie. Like, right. um, and I showed it to my roommates, and I mean, it's you know, and would I'm, people I'm, always walk away after that being like, "You're right, this is an underrated movie," or were some people like, "Why did you show me that?" Like, because I, when I watched this film, was surprised by how much I liked it. On, but yeah. I had very low expectations, uh, or I, not I, very low, but like, well, I mean, I don't know that if I've, I don't know that I've ever had someone say, "Why did you show me that?" Sure. But, um, <laughs> maybe rude. they were afraid. Yeah. Um, right, right, but right. Uh, no, I mean, I've just, you know, not everyone has loved it. Sure. Um, but a lot of people have loved it, or at least so they told me. <laughs> sure, <laughs> but it's a special movie. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a it's a very moving film too. I mean, yeah. you, you don't necessarily you yeah, have it's hard to appreciate to the aesthetics it, right. to you know. A lot of people have problems with Nolte's accent and whatnot, but. I can't be mad at his accent. I can't either. It works. It's too unusual for me to be mad at. It's also the other thing, and I have to, I I should note this, um, and I didn't know this at the time. I mean, it's only after I saw the movie that I realized this, or uh, as I saw the movie, I realized the story. Um, You know, my my father worked for the World Bank. Um, So, so, you know, when I saw that, like, this was a World Bank family, Mm -hmm. like, there are certain things about World Bank families, not that, you know, I knew that many of them, but. You know, we know a lot of Turkish World Bank families and a couple of others, but um, you know, there was something about the way it depicted that family that felt very authentic to me. Yeah, I I, I love good Washington D.C. movies. Mm-hmm. Sure, yep. um, and I think of this as one, even though you know it's not really like. A- yeah, but it's a good movie about like being confronted with an insurmountable problem and sort of char- charging into it. And, and charging into bureaucracy and right like I, yeah. I, I get the Washington D.C. vibe, which you know, aside from the fact that he is a doctor, I know it is the easiest thing in the world and a, a, an overly tempting thing to do to track the uh, character struggle in any movie onto the director expressing something about how hard it is to make a movie. <laughs> but it does feel like there's something in the sort of single-mindedness. Mm-hmm. of I need to solve this seemingly impossible problem, you know, and the type of mentality that gives you the the persistence and the stubbornness and the mix of uh, uh, realism but also optimism to keep going through it. And, and, just, and, and to have that also be 
someone who has been both a filmmaker and a practicing doctor. Yeah. 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 But also, I mean, it, there's also a certain arrogance to these characters. I mean, the yes. guy, they even say this in the movie. It's yeah. a whole thing. And um, and he doesn't shy away from that. Right. Like, they are, they are allowed to be... You know they're persistent, but they're allowed to be a little annoying in their in their persistence as well. And I and I yeah. love that. And I love the fact that it's part of right. why they succeeded. At right. This. And, right. And 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 you know the way that Susan Sarandon's character, you know, kind of becomes almost monstrous at a certain yeah. point. I'm almost shot like a horror movie character where she's kind of like lurking in the background. Yeah. Or, you know, she's like a shadow, or we see the back of her head. Um, even as we understand why she's doing the things that she's doing, and even as you know, we feel great compassion for her. Um, the film also is willing to acknowledge this, the sense that, you know, she is, you know, she's becoming this, like, you know, kind of monstrous figure. Well, and, and you know, uh, the, the mapping is easy because making films is something that all filmmakers innately have experience with. So you can oh, watch yeah. any movie knowing that <laughs> they they can always relate whatever's happening in the film to going through that. Yeah, but but that's I keeping mean, your eye on the goal, right? At the risk of offending, alienating all sorts of people. Which, by the nature of this podcast and mm-hmm. the types of films and directors we cover, we're mm-hmm. constantly coming up against those anecdotes where mm-hmm. it's like everyone said you can't do this thing, or the stories of how they someone tricked someone into doing the thing they wanted them to do, right, right, right. Or you act like an asshole and hardball on this thing, sure. so that they ultimately come around. Like that sort of bullheadedness. All in the name of some single-minded end purpose, you know? Mm-hmm. I think what is interesting is that in the same way that he portrays the the Yusinov doctor as inherently a well-intentioned moral man who is beholden to— Well, the- he's like, I want to help you in any way I can. I have ideas, but right, when they're like, how do we just like crash through the yeah. system? He has to be like, well, I still represent, you know— a methodology that I can't like go around. And it is yeah. this thing that I, I genuinely just don't think about much because we are uh, so frequently talking about how uh, completely fucked our healthcare system is. Mm-hmm. And it's very easy to just think of the binary of like, we should all get treatment <laughs> and it shouldn't cost us all literally an arm and a leg, you know? Um, that you don't think about the intricacies of uh, the, the double-edged sword of bureaucracy needing to coexist with medical science. Because um, of what is at stake in every single instance and that you are essentially – if you are working in the medical field, you're working in a field where uh, mistakes are truly uh, fatal, you know, where where, where the the stakes are so high in terms of what uh, can go wrong that you understand the sort of trepidatiousness and the sort of like – uh, the instinct to follow the line and not veer off because it's like, how are you going to defend the choice to do something that hasn't been thoroughly tested and approved if that goes wrong versus if you follow the book and the person dies and you're able to say, well, it's just it's a horrible disease. We couldn't have done anything about it. But it's like you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah. And, and and you see that depicted even in like the nurses. Yeah, I mean, mm. and that's another thing I love about this movie, and I think why someone like Miller was ideal for it. You'll see, you know, these these weird scenes or shots where you you see, um, you know, a, a, a nurse talking to the Odones or to Lorenzo, mm-hmm. 
and they walk away, and then you see her face and her expression just changes. It's not like a, I mean, it's almost like a horror movie thing, right. but it's not. Yeah. Her expression just changes to completely neutral, almost robotic. And you realize this is this is part of their job. This is this person's job. And I mean, you'll see it with the, you know, the the the, the nurses that come to their house where, you know, like this is how we do things. You have to do it this way. I can't be a party to this. And even as they want to help, and even, it's not like they, they don't care, yeah. but there is a certain amount of, you know, self-preservation, professionalism, all these things that come into it. And I think, you know, Miller, as someone who was a doctor, probably saw this and understood this on some level with the doctors as well. You know, like, I mean, I'm right. sure it's something, you know, I mean, he worked in an emergency room, right? Isn't yes. that isn't yeah. that how, like, Mad Max came about? Yeah, right? he would, like, drive yeah. an ambulance around and right. do, like, DIY surgeries on people. But, but it is, I mean, I, I'm going to I'm gonna mingle it here, but Yusinov has that line at one point where he's, like, your job is to be parents, and yeah. my job is to not. Yeah, yeah. Like, my job is to see this from the objective point of view and not get clouded by emotions yeah. because that's my responsibility. You are not going to be able to extricate your emotions from this situation, mm-hmm. and that onus is on me. And, and they can view that as, oh, you're disconnected. You're at arm's length. You're not understanding the stakes of this. Yeah. And he's like, if I was getting as upset about this as you were, I wouldn't be able to do my job. Yeah. But then also this movie is not clinical at all. It feels like a fucking opera. It's, and yeah. like he'll is, stage a, con- a conference with a doctor in like Charlie Rose, like yes. black room and, you know, <laughs> things like that. It is as operatic as any movie I have ever seen. And it's seen. using yeah. Barbara's Adagio just for strings. And Platoon had just come out like six years earlier. So yeah. it's kind of like... Like a almost hacky piece of music, in a way to use, but it works. And it's, it's very repeating it. It's very times. referential in that way. I mean, this is. It's also. I mean, this is also George Miller's like movie love movie. Yeah, sure. Because I mean, the scene where they talk about the the you know the night of the shooting stars, La Notte di San Lorenzo. Mm-hmm. He's using Verdi's Requiem, which is the music that's used in the Taviani Brothers' Night of the Shooting Stars. Very right. memorable. Sure. Like right. this is a movie that is you know, referential in that way. And that's another thing that, you know, I mean, this is 92? 92. 92. Yeah. An incredible yeah. movie year. Yeah, incredible movie year. But like 92, um, there was this period in the, you know, early 90s and maybe even starting in the late 80s where we get these kind of highly referential, um, highly stylized auteur films. I mean, Cape Fear, mm-hmm. Age of Innocence, yes, yes. Dracula, Bram Stoker's Dracula, right. this one. Well, very right. much so. You have all these guys like De Palma and Coppola yeah. and Scorsese making quote-unquote yeah. like studio tentpole movies. Making sort of pulpy movies. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, signing on to pre-existing IP and but I mean, you, you get also, things I mean, like The Untouchables Carriage but sequence. Right. Yeah, and, but they're filled right. with like lap dissolves yeah. and all this stuff. And a lot of it I think comes from the in the 1980s, you know, there was this kind of run of great, like, restorations of silent films, right? In part because of the video revolution. But, like, you know, I think Napoleon is restored in 81 or, you know, released in 81. I think Sunrise is is restored at the end of the the decade. I mean, but, Mm -hmm. like, there's this period of reconnecting with movie history and suddenly you start to see these movies. I don't know that any of them, like, has directly referenced, like, why they did this, but you really sense this, you know, reconnection and this, the return of this, like a very lush stylization that feels like I think around this time there's also a restoration or a re-release of Magnificent Amberson. Mm-hmm. You feel like you're watching, like, you know, if Orson Welles had continued to yeah. make movies. Right. Coppola does his uh, Napoleon reconstruction. Yeah, right, right, right. right. I mean, I think part of that is 
I hadn't thought about this, but it is like that's that's the period of time, the late eighties, early nineties, where suddenly the movie brats are becoming the establishment. Right, right. Like mm-hmm. if not the old guard, they're becoming the guys who are at the absolute peak of the mountain. Mm-hmm. And unlike, you know, Spielberg, who had just sort of pretty much started at the top as someone who is really successful at being populist yeah. and in touch with the culture, the other guys had to fight to sort of get to the point right, right. where they were able to get access to those major budgets, yeah, big, big name IP, yeah. whether it's a remake or it's a book or right. it's a adaptation of a TV show or whatever the fuck it is. Um and, you know, Coppola had sort of gotten to that point accidentally and then lost it hard and is now being given the keys to the kingdom again. Like, all these guys are getting to do these things, and that's the first major wave of filmmakers who are, like, the the product of serious film school. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. It's, a, it's real film school kids. That's right. what I was thinking about, too. Yeah. Yeah. They're coming up at the time. Beyond, you also have Malcolm X this year, which yeah. is, like, Spike Lee's big first magnum opusy kind of movie, yeah. right? You have Unforgiven, obviously, which right. is— more swan songy, although then d- 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 twenty d- more movies d- dedicated to Sergio and Don. Like yes, that's 100%. his. That's his referential movie. And you have yeah, Altman uh, coming back and making a big uh, fucking movie in yeah, the player, rather right. than like his weird eighties output, which is, which is also his. I mean, his version of movie love is like right. get a load of these fucking assholes yes, working on Hollywood. Percent. Yeah. And then you also have like the dawn of Tarantino right. is yeah. this year, the dawn of Miramax with the Crying Game, yeah. And the dawn of, like, well, I guess it's not the dawn of, like, this sort of 90s sexy thriller, but, like, Basic Instinct is this year, which is sure, sort of maybe yeah. the peak of the, yeah. uh, I mean, the uh, like, yeah. really hard R sort of. Well, they, they kind of come back with Basic Instinct because before there yeah, was, like. Yeah, right. The 80s had had that They had Body wave Heat and they had yeah, all those. But then, right, right. you know. Basic kind Instinct of, is, like, more vulgar. Like, yeah. Body Heat is fucking Disney compared to this yeah, shit. Yeah, like, yeah. we can go further, guys. But I think, I mean, I saw. Scorsese, I'm sorry, Scorchese speak at the New York Film Festival a couple of years ago because he'll like every year pretty much, uh, I think almost every year, he'll he'll screen a restoration that he had yeah. helped supervise and do a little talk back after it. And he did this q and I forget who moderated it, but they actually asked him one question that took up the entire <laughs> 45 <laughs> to hour long Q&A. It was the best Q&A it must have been I have Ken ever seen. Or whatever, I know, think right, it was. Yeah, it was right, perfect, but yeah. it was just... Literally, so you've done a lot for preservation and for film history. How did you get started with all of this? <laughs> sure. And it was one perfect 50-minute. But that question is designed. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, well, let's uh, just talk about How, how yeah. did you get started with film but, history but I mean, to I, Martin Scorsese? You know, maybe there I'm, all day. Maybe I'm smoothing, smoothing it over. <laughs> Picture my mother slaving over <laughs> right. the stove. And I'm like, all right, baby, we're on Mulberry we Street. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, Unbuckle maybe. your belts, you know, take your shoes off. Maybe I'm Settle rewriting in. this in my mind, but I literally don't even remember the other person interjecting with like, can you elaborate on that? I just remember the other person sitting back with like their arms crossed and letting him right. go. But he was talking about sort of the the baby steps that led to him starting, uh, what's it called? The Film Foundation mm-hmm. and all of his sort of preservation and, uh, uh, and such. And um, – he talks about when all those guys started to like break into the the mm-hmm. studio system and have access to the lot uh, because they were all like these film school kids who were hyper literate, hyper obsessive with everything. In a certain way, were I think influenced by what the whole Cahiers de Cinema gang looked like to them. Sure, they wanted to be a new right. Right. Here are right. these like eight people who all just sit around all day watching movies like nonstop and talking about them extensively. We want to promote that same sort of like excitement and cultural literacy about the history of film in America, in California. 
Um, when they got access to all these backlots, they'd go like, oh, my God, we can just go in there. They have prints of everything and we can watch them. We can just <laughs> take a print and we can go into a screening room and we can just stay there and watch whatever we want. And Scorsese said as they started getting these prints and screening them, all of them were horrible. Like they were sure. like orange and they were melting. Right. And it started with them being like, we have to complain to them, <laughs> which they, of course, were like, who fucking cares? And I think it became like a real cause for them is like the more successful they got, the more responsibility sure. they felt to yeah. continue that cycle, which then perpetuated itself onto the bigger their opportunities became as filmmakers, the more their films had to promote a sort of sense of, right. if but, I like but, this movie, I want to step away and research what this is referencing. Let's get back to George Miller, though, because now we're just completely off the George Miller track. Yeah, that's an interesting little thing. It's interesting. interesting. That's very interesting. Um, but, but, like, but he, because he's not one of those guys at all. No. And he's a bit of an interloper. Yeah. And he's using Hollywood tools and stars here. Yeah. But I feel like he's making something that I'm sure they like this, or like, I'm sure that the Scorseses of the world were intrigued by this movie or whatever. Yeah. If they even bothered to see if it. If they that's even the bothered to see right. it. Right. But like, it's not like this movie is coming out and people are like, you gotta stick around. Like, right. I wish welcome this, to the Hollywood establishment, right? I, like, you know, I wish this movie has come out in the age of Twitter. This is one of the few things that I sure. wish had happened in the, the age of the, Twitter. The nulty memes. The, oh, the nulty memes. <laughs> yeah. But I feel like it would have found an audience. Well, sure. even just in the way that something like Dark Water or like Margaret, like or Sully. Right, right. <laughs> Sully! I mean, we're talking about three. Hey, these guys, they eyeballed it with the oil. No, I don't know. I can't do a Sully. But trip. all three of those are movies where I had experiences that are kind of similar to what you described seeing Lorenzo's oil. Right, we walking up being like, why isn't why isn't everyone talking about it? Right, this? like Sully yeah. I saw a couple weeks in, but I was like, no critics are standing up for this. I guess this movie sucks after thinking the trailer was good. And then I sat there in a theater like alone at 11 o'clock on a Tuesday and was like, why is no one addressing the fact that this honks? Oh, he's good. Uh, on, no insensitivity to the geese who uh, got killed by Sully. I, 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 Come on, Bill. Yeah, I don't Bill I love Sully. It's a Sully. Come I, I don't love. I what like. I like, I like. I like. Do you know? Do you know how many souls were on that plane? <laughs> I, I've forgotten how many souls were on the plane. And do you know how many survived? All of them. Yep. Every single one. Um, yeah, I pulled. There was no chance he could make it to Teterboro. He couldn't. So the plot of Lorenzo's. They didn't have the thrust. They lost thrust. He couldn't make it to Teterboro. He's he's uh, what's his name? Augusto. Yes. Uh, Odone. He's, yes. He works for the World Bank. Uh-huh. They're on the Camaro Com- Islands. Uh-huh. That's what they're called, right? The Camaros. Yeah. This is just um, the opening credit sequence. Yes, By the time the titles are done, son. you're landed in D.C. And then they're back in D.C. His son starts acting weird. He has ALD. He has this brain degeneration sort of disease, right? Like it's, I mean, how yeah. to just, it's like, I mean, his the body film, lacks the enzymes to process right. these fatty oils, and so it starts to like destabilize your it's entire a, it's nervous a system. Degenerative, right? Yeah. Right? yeah. It and, like melts away your fucking brain. Yeah, basically. Yes. Um, and the film does. We're doing a poor job of explaining it, but the film does a the great job is of explaining. Really invested in explaining it. Yeah, to you. and 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 every five or ten minutes, you get like uh, an analogy, you know, a comparison. Sure, of, someone will be uh, like, well, this is like yeah. the wiring of the brain. And yeah. here, like, that's why I'll explain what myelin yeah. is to And you. I love yeah. all those explanations. Like, Me it's too. like, you know, like I can easily see a critic saying, why do we? Why are we getting so many explanations? I would not cut a single one. In oh, fact, it's, I would love like a four-hour director's cut of just them explaining it's the juice explaining of this shit. movie. The and oil, it is, one might say. Well, <laughs> and it's also this like incredible in he has from the actual true events, which are like 
Here are two people who are very intellectually curious, right. but have no Naturally background so. in Madison. Right, right, right. Madison. Medicine. I mean, right, because like Madison. one of Nolte's biggest scenes is that scene where he's at the whiteboard and he's trying, right. right, and like she's like, right, you, this is you. Yeah. It's just you tackling something sink, yeah. you've never had to tackle They're before. They're obsessive right. people right. who like believe in the like never-ending quest for knowledge sure. yeah. uh, who just then go like, there's Bear gotta with be us. something. We don't right. understand this, but let's discuss this in detailed terms. Right. That and can appeal to a layperson, and let's get into it deeply because we want to know this shit first. Yeah. And the fact is, they're smart. Yes. And yes. the movie is not afraid to make them smart. And, and the movie is not afraid and to also say, you know, the fact that these people were intellectually curious. Like led to their being able to do this. There's a certain right. amount of you know, and but, that's interesting. And it also, but it does acknowledge that like they were a little alienating, and they, right. they you know they become part of a community of people right. who suffer, whose kids suffer from this disease. And the community doesn't a community love of that. great character actors. Uh, great, I mean, we yeah. got Reb Horn, you got Margot Martindale. Anytime you, you got, have Anne Dowd and Margot Martindale in the same <laughs> movie, you're playing with a hot hand. Um, I mean, Laura, this is Laura Linney's first, her first, well, I think first movie, her number one yeah. first. And when she shows up, you're like, hey, it's Laura Linney, like right. same as ever. Yeah. Like you know, it's not like she's she really just hit the ground running. Um, like her first appearance, and she looks like Laura Linney. She's giving a perfect Laura Linney performance. Like yeah. she had no adjustment time. <laughs> To you also, being a, a film actress. You also have the great Kathleen. I never know how to say her name. Will Hoyt? Will Hoyt? Something oh, like that. Sure. As the sister. Mm-hmm. Uh, who great, is yeah. in ER yeah, as so uh, Dr. Lewis's sister. Is in Gilmore Girls as uh, she as Luke's sister. She's she's always a good the sister character. Good sister. Yeah. 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 Who has like kind of like a sort of fun sister energy. Right? right you imagine right, right, like yeah. her house is a lot of tchotchkes. Yeah. She's the sister who went backpacking in 100%, Europe right. and Asia. But we're jumping all around here. It, it is like I kept on waiting and I don't know why because I inherently trust George Miller. I trust your judgment, Bilga. <laughs> I've never heard anything bad about this movie even if it isn't discussed much. Mm-hmm. But I kept on waiting for the movie to make a sort of cringy mistake. And, and you know, are they going to demonize the doctor? Are they going to demonize the other families in the support group? Any of those sorts of things. And I think this movie is so good at the sort of the, the rules of the game. The, the great tragedy of the world is that everyone has their reasons. Right. You know, right, right. in a way that is so heartbreaking and is, is kind of equally devastating to the story of this young man's physical and mental deterioration is the story of. There, everyone has a reason for doing something that seems obstinate, destructive, yeah. closed-minded. And it's and it doesn't shy away from showing you that. That's yeah. the thing. Like it's not like it doesn't it – man, it avoids making those mistakes, but it doesn't avoid doing the things that you think it's going to do. Right. It just right. does it's them really well. Right. It's not like everyone in this movie is a saint it's yeah. or a villain. Yeah. Right. They're just people. Yeah. I mean there's yeah. there's tons of conflict between them and the fam- other families. Yeah. There's tons of conflict between them and the doctors. And then also, you know, I mean, the the the, you know, I I always bristle sometimes when people say movies, certain movies are emotionally manipulative. But this seems like a movie that would be emotionally ma- manipulative. You've got a, ch- yeah. a sick child in danger who's basically dying. Right. You know, they could, you know, they could tiptoe around it. Right. But they don't. They show you the things that are happening to them. They show you the, the they show you the things that are happening to the other kids. They show you. A child, the child looking, witnessing his looking future, at which another is really, child who right, is right. further along. When he has and, the pumpkin. Yeah, I mean uh. that is that's the kind of thing that like a lesser director would cut, would either cut, yeah. or just 
fuck up completely. Sure. Not, not and George Miller is like, no, 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 I'm going for it. Not only that, and I feel like I, I, I'm going to lack the language to explain this properly and hope that you will step up to the plate. <laughs> but uh, the first chunk of the movie where Lorenzo is being played by this main young actor who never acted again, mm-hmm. and do you know this, mm-hmm. became an editor-in-chief at Forbes yeah, magazine. Yeah, Forbes, yeah, Zach, oh, Zach well, Has written yeah. three books on the hip-hop industry. Yeah. He's like some media. And is now writing about celebrity VC culture. Yes, he is. But also, his voice as he degenerates is being done by E.G. Daly. The one thing I wish I had being done by fucking Tommy Pickles from Rugrats. But also, am I wrong about this? Am I wrong in thinking she is also the voice of Babe? Uh, you're right. Uh, she's the voice of Babe in Babe Pig in the City. And the first one, I believe, Babe is voiced by Chucky. Christine Cavanaugh, who yeah, is indeed the voice of Chucky Finster. How strange. It really is funny to think there yeah. were just like eight ladies like in the yeah. 90s who did all Years children. Years Smith. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, yeah. But I, it, I, I regret looking that up in advance because then every time Lorenzo screamed, I was like, that's a Rugrat. I, that, I recognize the tones of a Rugrat. <laughs> but also, I think the, the actor playing Lorenzo changes, obviously, as he's times. getting older. Yeah. And, yeah, and four different actors. Right, exactly. Well, this is what but I was most of, them is, most of them is Zach O'Malley. Right. The, the first third of the movie is like Zach O'Malley yes, yes, doing yes, performances yes. with makeup augmentation, mm-hmm. but he is very visible. He is present in scenes. You're watching his degradation. And then the last chunk of the film, you have an older actor. He's more visible again. You're watching him sort of yeah. find a, a pathway back to uh, some level of uh, agency in his own life. But there's the midsection of the film in which Lorenzo becomes very visually abstract. Like the movie right. is not shying away from what he's growing, going through, but you are rarely seeing his face. Mm-hmm. It always becomes this sort of like Charsker alighting, this yeah, very right, like right, sort right. of expressionistic tapestry, and it feels like the sounds of the machines that are keeping him alive are overpowering everything else. I mean, he starts to feel like some sort of bizarre monster within their home. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's everyone's talking he's about him. Yeah. And he's almost always in frame, but you're almost never seeing him cleanly. And I think there's an interesting balance of Trying to make sure you understand, you're feeling the disturbingness of of the state that this child is in, but the film also doesn't become exploitative in trying to show you, yeah, sort of the the medical degradation. Yeah, but it kind of has to detail. do. But it kind of has to do that, I think, because it's also conveying, it's trying to make you think, because it's going to sort of pull the rug out from yeah. under you later. But he wants us to think that. This child has no self anymore, has no sense of self anymore. Lorenzo's right? just an idea now that everyone yeah. in the movie is debating. So exactly. the, we're not showing you his face because right. his face is kind of irrelevant at this yeah. point. There's this that point, scene where know, the nurse he's is He's the just... Palpatine clone. Right. You know, kind of right. kept there. Yeah. Well, just, I mean, the dead speak. Yeah. We're all just um, arguing around him. Yeah. But there's a scene where the nurse is like rushing through the story that yeah. she's been asked to tell him. Yeah. And they get in that she's fight over really yeah. 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 Like later on when Susan Sarandon is reading that story and he starts to blink and yeah. roll his eyes a little bit mm-hmm. I mean that scene is also so powerful when she's just like oh my god you're there yeah. you just you know you just can't communicate with us but you're there you're growing up you're older and I've been reading you Peter Rabbit yeah. all this time I mean, my I mean, fucking nightmare that flipped me out so hard <laughs> like as much as it's a moment of victory yeah, right. that it's also tinged with like wait a second this guy has just spent 10 years having the same fucking Peter Rabbit book Read to yeah. him over and over and over again. I, he couldn't express himself. It's, yeah, I mean, what I mean, existential terror! 
it's yeah, it, it really does. Like, and at that point, you kind of lock into. And I, I believe it's right at that point that you you get a Lorenzo's eye point of view shot. Yeah. of the of the the, the mobile on in the in the um hanging above yeah. him. Yeah. Um, and and then you know, you get a close up of him, and, and suddenly you're like, oh my god, like there's a person in there. As she's reading to him, right. you're and, seeing from his eyes for the yeah. first time yeah. in a long time, and it also feels like that scene is the first time you're clearly seeing his face in like. 40 minutes of screen time. Sure. You know, the movie has just been shooting him from angles where you're seeing someone working his leg. Right, right, Or right. you're seeing him in the background out of focus with the machine whirring or whatever it is. Yeah, but there's, right. I mean, I'm just trying to, like, there's so many scenes in this movie that made me sit up. Like, obviously, Nick Nolte falling down the stairs in operatic agony as the yeah. camera zooms in on words in a diagnosis book. Like, when, that was when I first was like, oh, this is, George Miller is here. Right. Like, this is crazy. Yeah. But um, the scene where the doctor helps him walk in front right. of all the other doctors right. is another scene where, like, the whole time you're like, what is this scene doing here? I don't – like, well, this doesn't have anything to do with anything yeah. except that it's, like, something that's happening. Right? Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. yes. Like, it's not like that informs the plot in a major way. But but, but it is. It's, it's, uh, part, yeah, it's yeah, very yeah. – I'm not sure. saying it's, a, it's superfluous at all. Sure, sure, like, sure, it's very, yeah. you know, you're seeing that side of the yeah. medical industry that's trying to help him yeah. like, and how it – can be a little sterile, and but it's the, not unfeeling. The paradox of yes, the, the paradox right. of the fact that in order to help you and in order to help cure this thing, we have to treat you almost like, like a, a, a guinea, an, like an a object, guinea, right? You know? Like a zoo animal, and also yeah. that the whole time the doctor is sort of saying, "Like I'm going to help kids like you." Yeah, that the doctors are all kind of acknowledging, like, you know, this is a disease that you can't reverse. Yeah. Like that, this isn't. We're not going to be able to put the toothpaste right, back right. in the that tube. Right, right. That thing that feels very callous and unfeeling. But is is sort of just didactic of look. There's there's no pathway out of this. It's two years. It's done. It's too late. The best thing we can do, not to be unfeeling, is to be able to extract whatever data we need it's, and can. It's like a doctor from your child your organ. You right. know, like in an organ donation things like that. Fifteen years right. from now, we might crack this. You know. Which it's like uh, I, I, if you're on the other end of that table, uh, once you start uh, uh, being able to put aside your grief for a second, mm-hmm. I think you go, how dare my kid get re- reduced to – I mean she, she almost directly says this. This is my child. This is not some number. He's not yeah. a case study. He's not an example. You know, yeah. He's not a data point. Yeah. Um, but, but that's the most responsible thing for them to do. Clinically, yeah, sure, and that's why I think that scene of Nolte breaking down in the stairs, incredible, scene. incredible Just scene, and so important. You know, it's like it's. I mean, to a, a, a to a parent who is discovering this. I mean, this is the thing. I, I have a problem sometimes with the way grief is depicted in movies because mm-hmm. it's you know people are such kind of noble sufferers. Sure, and I've seen some films recently where it's like scene after scene after scene of people, you know, kind of lightly crying. Like the the idea that you have to be understated with this sort of thing. And sure. here, George Miller is like, let me tell you what it's like to be a father who just found out his son is going to die. His like yeah. six-year-old son is going to die. And it is brutal yeah. and also incredibly beautiful. Like, you know, if I had to rewatch a scene from this movie, it would probably be that scene, even though it is yeah. utterly emotionally devastating. But then you have the other thing, too. I mean, the scene where the doctor delivers the news to them for the first time, Sarandon does, like, a masterclass of underplaying. Yeah. 
yeah. where it's just locked into That's this two-shot That's kind of the, the like you're of hearing the words but not yeah. really understanding right. them. And she's just right. very calmly asking the logical series of follow-up questions. And as she's asking them, she is recognizing, oh, my God, I'm on the verge of crying. Right. Like she's playing that thing of, oh, I'm surprised that I suddenly can't. And, and, and say these words. I can't get them out of my throat. And yeah. that's the shot. That's the scene where the style stops. Right. Right. That's the scene where, like, the camera stops moving. Yeah. Um, they even, like, do this whole thing of, like, the you know, there's this fan in the background. And the doctor's like, oh, my God, we, we don't need that thing. You know, and it, and it becomes totally silent. Right. Yeah. Um, really, I think the only time in the movie where it's, like, total silence. And totally it's locked an- down. Another very weird little interesting moment in, a, in this movie, too, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Why, why, why are we seeing this? I, I yeah. love, to be clear, yeah. that we're seeing that. Oh, well, we'll oh, get yeah. to my favorite little weird thing in this movie. But um, he, he is, for a guy who is so, his films are so designed, they're so controlled, they're so him trying to fully get the thing in his mind down on film. Um, he does really let actors control a scene, mm-hmm. you know, oh, in yeah. a weird yeah. way. Even if he's specifically directing them to hit a specific thing, the very nature of his filmmaking and storytelling style, the fact that he is such an sort of uh, uh, such an, uh, a subjective, emotion-first, visceral, expressionistic filmmaker means you're sort of, saying to both the camera and the actors, you're going to sell the feeling of this thing because I don't want conventional Hollywood sort of histrionics. He's not afraid of melodrama. No, which and, I love. And which, which requires a lot of the actor. I mean, it's like Douglas Sirk. Yeah. Sure. You know, I mean, yeah. one of the most styl- sty- you know, stylized filmmakers of all time, but also includes like actors just like, going for it, you know? The staircase thing, the the moment leading up to it where he's reading through all the papers and the papers are cross-fading into one another and you're landing very quickly on certain words that are Mm -hmm. standing out and the shot that they keep on cross-cutting with is Nolte just reading intensely Mm -hmm. and his eyes are so wide open. It is fully cartoonish. No one looks like that when they are reading something regardless of how worrying the thing they're reading is. But... That is how you feel when you're reading something like that. And it's a thing that Miller understands, and it allows him to avoid the scene where people explain everything they're feeling, mm-hmm. which is where these yeah. movies slow down and become boring. Yeah, these movies that often are like, yeah, don't worry, we'll have a scene right. that does all that work, and that scene is a miserable slog. Okay, mm-hmm. I want to try to very concisely express a thing that I struggled to say in our Fury Road episode, which is already in the can. Rachel Mark, that this is maybe an excuse to cut this tangent from the Fury Road episode. <laughs> so Susan Sarandon said in some fairly recent career retrospective thing where she was going over all of her different roles. Uh-huh. Um, Michelle Pfeiffer was the first choice for she this was. movie. Yes. She was supposed to do it. She dropped out because she was offered Catwoman. Yes. Because Came out this year. Uh, Annette Bening had gotten pregnant. Right. There was like a domino effect. It was effect. A weird. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Um, but so then he goes down the line to the next, which is a Eastwick right. call sheet person. Yeah. Right. He's like, Sharon Nolte might not work for this movie. <laughs> sure. I'll do it with Sarandon. And Sarandon said that uh, the plan when they were making this film, uh, as it was designed, was uh, it would look how it looks at the beginning. And then over the course of the film, it would slowly desaturate and desaturate and desaturate right. into black and white yeah. until mm. the scene with the book where Lorenzo suddenly – Sort of is able to to communicate with them and it would come back into color. That that was the whole idea and that they literally could not afford to do it. 
Because as opposed to today, when Bong Joon-ho or just, George like, Miller can just do that, yeah. right, and put it out online and re-release it into theaters, it was a photochemical process yep. that required retiming every single shot. And she said, we just ran out of money. Weird anecdote. She said the second that was the second time that it happened in my career. Rocky Horror was supposed to be in black and white until Frankenfooter oh. shows up on screen and then go into color. Also a fun idea. Yeah. Fun idea. Couldn't right. afford it, right? So w- w- did they did they shoot it that way and then later they shot, realized they couldn't do it? They shot everything in color. And what they mm-hmm. couldn't afford was to photochemically adjust it. So because because there is – I mean it, the, the, the film does have a, a unique cinematography totally. to it. The way everything is lit, like there is – I mean – the, the actors always like just pop yes. in a way that they mm. tend not to in modern films. It's very stark, high contrast, hard lighting. Yeah. He even a bunch of times does that effect that you and I love, which I, we, I've never figured out the formal name for, mm. but it's the thing that, dare I invoke him, Barry Sonnenfeld does in Adam's Family which, which, with Angelica Houston where he oh, lights the Oh, there's literally just like a little light on their it's like eyes. It's just the sweater yeah, that's, that's a, I mean, yeah. Like that's, they're in, that's a, like they're that's in a, a confessional thing, yeah. booth. Sure. You right. know? And it's, I mean, the thing with Morticia obviously is the most hysterical because it's true in no matter what environment right. she's in. <laughs> but he'll do that in this too. Yeah, and it definitely has this. It's thing. this thing that I was trying to get at when talking about the black and white version why I don't really care about it, the Fury Road episode is that for me it feels like a half measure, but it also feels redundant because what he's trying to get at is making you think differently about the film you've already seen, right? By presenting it in a slightly different format, you reconsider it a little bit. Mm -hmm. But all it makes you really reconsider is George Miller is one of the few filmmakers who still makes movies like a silent filmmaker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, Absolutely. when you put a thing in black and white, like Fury Road, all oh, it I does, remember your Fury Road tension right, now. Right, it, it, cut yeah. all of it out. No, I'm, don't I'm doing cut it, it out. <laughs> but, but, but this is like watching I, this. I kind of dunk on your ass when you say it. It's yeah, a great moment. Right, it's a savage right. burn. I'm like Boston Market. I'm <laughs> roasted with a side of mac and cheese. <laughs> but, but, uh, but but it is that kind of thing where I was like, it's it's unnecessary. And as much as I would love to see him put out the version where he's color timed it the way he wanted to originally, it's the fact that he is willing to say to Nick Nolte, in this scene, you have to go full Valentino. In this scene, I'm going to light it in a way where no room would ever possibly look because I'm going to light it in the way that their brain feels at that moment. Right. right. You right. know, when they receive this news. And it is this thing that, like, you know, the the old silent filmmakers used to talk about where they're like, it's such a shame that sound came along. People were finally figuring out how to use film. Yeah. And then it became this easy crutch where you can just have a person walk on and be charming. And I love dialogue-based films. I love performance-based films. I love naturalistic films. I love comedies, whatever. But there was something to the fact that uh, people had to really figure out a way to convey an emotion when so many basic tools were stripped away from theater. Yeah. You know, from most performance that we knew. Mm. And Miller is this guy where his movies kind of play like silent films. You could but, watch this movie for as yeah. much as it has all the detailed science medicine talk. You could watch this film and I think pretty much get the entire emotional narrative just from the images and from the visuals That's of funny the funny considering how much information is actually dispensed in yeah. this film but yeah no sure. that's what i think makes him a master is he is using the dialogue for things that only dialogue can do yeah. and he is using the visuals for the things that people usually rely on it's also just funny that there do. are so many people in this movie who are obviously playing themselves these professionals mm-hmm. the best of them of course being the british fucking olive he's oil be, guy he's be, oh my who god rules and there's that scene where he's like 
can you tell them I, uh, I'm, I'm done with that and I'm um, going off to home now. So this is my example of my favorite little thing that doesn't need to be in the movie. Of course, this guy's an important character. Yeah. But for this guy to have his own little mini b It rules! His little story that's like, well, I figured I was going to retire in six months anyway. I'll give it a shot. Yeah. And his co-workers being like, should we be worried about him? <laughs> right, but right. I love that shot of the oh, two guys, yes. which is like, you know, like something out of 1940. It's like something yeah. out of an Ealing comedy. Yes. You know? Guys, to be clear, what's happening in the film is they need to extract certain fatty acids from oil to create Lorenzo's oil, right? Yeah. Like it's like a chemical, expensive chemical process right. that no one would ever do because it has no purpose. In the dumbest, most this. reductive way, after like sort of hitting their head against the wall, doing all the things the doctors tell them to do, being told that nothing's going to work, right. Nolte and Sarandon push through and recognize that one of the key issues is that his body is misinterpreting these, what do they call them, long chain yeah. fatties, fatty acids. Fatty right, fatty acids. Right. acids. Right. And they land on this thing that is, what if we could trick the body into thinking that that was being done or that it didn't need to do that and recognizing that there's a relationship between that action and an element in olive oil. And that's thus this and film becomes— And then rapeseed oil later on. Right. Yeah, yeah. This yes. film becomes an oil thriller. It does. But when you hear the title, you go like, what's it, Oil Barons it's and the oil Plains? It is the greatest food movie of all right. time. Right. <laughs> and of course, the that makes sense that the, the hero should be Italian. It's an right. olive oil movie. Yeah. God, the meals in this movie look so good. Anytime he makes a little And then pasta. those scenes like when, when he's eating the spaghetti yeah. with his hands, with his but hand. you don't see him— Doing that, you see Nolte doing yes. that, right. and then we move around and see the rest Everybody's of the family's imitating yeah. Lorenzo. So I love shit like that. Yeah, and it, it is it. All those things are very sweet uh, until they, like you say, they almost become sort of fetishistic, like in a weird way, yeah. right? Like like right. the Peter Rabbit thing. Yeah, like this. You know, they become obsessed with this. Yes, right. Understandably so. Like, what yeah. else are you going to be obsessed with if you're a mom to a sick child? That is, you know, that is your your, you know. That's your obsession in life. Well, and, um, and the scene where she outlines it where she's just like, maybe you're right, but I cannot live with the idea that maybe he's in there and his mind is totally alive and we're yeah. doing nothing. Right. That we're not stimulating Right, it's, fr- it. it's a freaky idea. Even yeah. if it's unlikely, what a fucking nightmare that would be. Well, and also the, the, you know, the emotional trajectory of the fact that she, you know, learns fairly early on that he got it from her. Yeah. You know, like the fact that this is a that thing scene that is mothers incredible. carry right. and right. only yeah. boys get it, yeah. which is, uh, you know, which is like just devastating. Right. And it informs everything she does. And you only re- ever, you hear it, you learn it once. Yeah. And then later on, and of course it's this thing that's like this unspoken thing between them until finally Nolte blow, blows up at one point and it's just like, you know, you're ashamed of, you know, you and your poisoned blood. Right. But he has to say it in he Italian. He says it in Italian. He has the to say subtitles it are kind of cool and interesting. Yeah. Yes. Like a um, more reserved version of Tony Scott. Yeah, right, right, right. right. Um, and it's really, really, you know, like that is this thing that is informing her character. But, you know, the film only touches on it a couple of times. It's sort of but, unspoken, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And you have people talk around it too, the fact that uh, – this is presumably Nolte's second marriage. He has two mm-hmm. adult children. Yeah. This is her first and only child. Right. She had a child late in life, yeah. and her siblings did not pass on this gene to their kids. Yeah, yeah exactly. it, was, it was a die roll every time, and she got the bad die Right, roll. and they yeah. say, like, this must be so hard for her because she waited this long to finally have one child. You already have two other ones. Yeah. Right? You know, we all and have And he other- has that weird guilt about that, too, you can yeah. tell. Yeah. And he plays around. I just, the whole time watching the movie, I knew Sarandon had gotten a yeah. an Oscar nomination. And I was sort of like, 
at first just sort of waiting for her, like, whatever, big histrionic moment. Mm -hmm. And then she, I guess she has, of course, like, very emotional moments, but she never has those, she never has, like, an Oscar scene. No. Which I loved. Yeah. It's sort of surprised she snuck in. Yeah, I mean, she never... Especially because this movie wasn't I, a big deal. I, I, I think it was partly just she was a very respected I think she actress. was automatic, and right. it's weird that, I mean, the only other Lost nomination this got... Emma Thompson. ...is the... Oh. Uh, the only other nomination this got screenplay. was the screenplay nom, which this is a good screenplay, but that also feels not like honoring the film because the writing is the strong suit. It feels like that thing where they're like, eh, you were right outside of our five... So we'll give you that as a consolation prize. Yeah. Like, I don't think the film would have gotten nominated for screenplay if George Miller hadn't also written the screenplay, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think I think people, I mean, uh, you know, I, I have no idea what the actual Oscar campaign for this sure. movie was like, if there even was one. I think that, but I mean, sure, it was released at Oscar time yeah, by but, a big studio. But, was, I'm sure yeah. they, but I'm sure they played up the fact that he was a doctor. Right. You know, and that, I mean, I do remember them playing that up. I mean, I remember that was in the, the press materials. Um, and I think... You know that was an acknowledge. I mean, I don't it's think acknowledgement, it's, but, right. but I don't think this was a case where, you know, if there had been ten best picture nominees, this was not going to be one of them. I, I, like this was not no th- that well. I guess I mean it, it, it clearly had its defenders, you know, in small pockets. But this is such a director's movie yeah. that it feels so perverse. Even if you know it's because the movie didn't make much of an that impact, it, that it got a screenplay to give him yeah, the screenplay I, I nomination. Like, instead. Um, yeah, and did, did Fury Road get a screenplay nomination? I'm sure it didn't. It did uh, not. It did right? Not. Yes, and and that too is actually such a well written. I mean, right. it's filled with just. Inc- I mean, quite aside from the fact that like screenwriting is not just dialogue, yes. but it's filled with incredibly beautiful, like poetic yes. dialogue, uh, as is it this one. Yeah. You know, but, but I yeah. think I think that is the reason it didn't get the screenplay nomination. Sure. Is so yeah. many people, even so many screenwriters, tend to judge screenplays by yeah. dialogue, by, like, right, 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 and yeah. what they're not acknowledging is that movie has some of the most airtight economic characterization and plotting oh, yeah, of anything in the last twenty five years. Um, he's got such an interesting Oscar run. It's so weird. Because of this random nomination. Right, this is his is, first nomination of any sort. Right, which is then followed by two Babe, you know, producing and writing Babe. Right. And then followed by winning an Oscar for making Happy, Happy Feet. Feet. Right. Yeah. And then followed by, of course, like the... Mad Max Fury Road, right. a sequel, his fourth sequel to Mad his Max, only, becoming a critical and awards darling. We can talk about it in every single episode of this miniseries, and it never will will seem like reality. It's it. I remember at the. Uh, I don't think you were a member yet uh, of the Dave, Critics Circle. No, I think I was like a year before. But I, was, I remember yeah. uh, while the. I mean, it didn't win anything from us. Yeah, because, what was that? Because we're idiots. <laughs> that was the Carol year. Carol did really well that, was that year. The Carol I think. Year? Yeah, yeah, I think Carol won. Yeah. Um, but I do remember uh, whoever was reading off the uh, the, the votes. The, the, the votes. The, chair, right? the first vote they got that said Fury Road. Mm-hmm. I think I think it was it was for Best Picture. Uh, I remember them going, "Huh, really?" And I was like, "You were like, what really? the fuck, dude?" Huh? Yeah. It is so funny how we make. Uh, I don't remember if that. Was, I don't remember if the person who was reading off someone the said, but a somebody huh. said, huh. "There was that right, energy." Right, there was, a and huh. I was just like, "Really?" This, you're like, where, "This is coming." Like, yeah. um, there was the year that uh, what's the movie called? Support the girls. Yeah. you know, was a contender, and Eric Cohn had to say "Jungle Pussy" like twenty five <laughs> times during the supporting actress votes. Best supporting actress contender, <laughs> Jungle Pussy. Just to had, be clear, know, you, for you, those who don't know. 
That is her credited name I, I mean, as I, an actress. I, I, she, it's a great. I actually love her performance in that movie so much. It, it made sense to me, but like just because he has to read out like, yeah. and it, at certain point you might be reading three names per ballot, and he's right. just so it's like you know, Sir Sharon and Kristen Stewart, Jungle Pussy, you know, like just like <laughs> over and over again. Like anyway, uh, it's just it's just it's it's a very Good funny times. thing we do every year. Yeah, just a bunch of you know adults sitting in a room writing little yeah names on pieces of paper. Yeah. Um, and then changing those names. Yes. I, I do love, I love all these little side narratives though. I mean, in the sort of everyone has their reasons, everyone has their own internal life. Yeah. That the, this guy who finally cracks the code and distilling the, the missing element, the yeah. other oil they need to uh, perfect this cocktail yeah. is this is his last thing before he hangs it up in his illustrious career making cosmetics. Yeah. And, th- and then the other guy, the other, the, the chemist with his like little like workplace affair that's right, happening. Becky Ann right, Becky Ann Baker, who's yep. constantly yep. like, he's like, I don't have time she's for this. She's always inserting herself. And she keeps yes. calling out and being like, you got a bunch of that lying around. Right. You, know, you have six people who could do yeah. that. Right. And I mean, that the other thing, after, after you watch this movie so many times, like everyone from this movie that I ever see in another movie, I'm like, oh yeah, it's the guy from Lawrence's Oil. It's, you know, for it's you, this is the baseline. Yeah, like exactly. if they were in Lorenzo's <laughs> you still see Laura Linney and you're like, oh, from Lorenzo's Oil. <laughs> yeah. She's kind of mean about his but, behavior but, in school. But each of them has a story. Like each of them has a, like I, I don't, yeah. like I don't know them as yeah. the actor from Lorenzo's Oil. I, I, I know them as, oh, that's the nurse that like didn't want to read the thing or that's right, the nurse right, who, right. you know, just felt like they really needed to take him to a hospital. Like everyone has a purpose and kind of a life beyond the frame, even though the film is not like kind of this, you know, Mike Lee, Ken Loach yeah. style. It's this very not controlled all, right. type of film. Right. It really kind of breaks free of the frame, too. But that, the Rebhorn scene. He's great. Uh, he so, so rarely plays compassionate people. Like he plays so many villains and like. A lot of judges. Greedy guys. Of, right. right. That like it is it is always interesting to see him playing more of just like a concerned dad. Yeah. Uh, if you want to cry, uh, which anyone who uh, watched Lorenzo's own preparation for this movie is probably uh, pretty dried out at this yeah, point. Yeah. I don't know that there's a movie that makes me cry more than this. I was I watched it again. I actually watched it this yeah. morning. At like 4 a.m. and okay. my God, I was just like, oh God! And I've like I've I know everything that's happening. I've, sure. I've seen it so many times, yes. and I just like I, I just couldn't stop. I, I very rarely cry at movies. I I didn't cry watching this, but it did give me that all-consuming sense of of grief and yeah. dread that I have not felt for a movie on this podcast since Saving Private Ryan, (laughs) where I'm like, this is exquisitely torturous. Yeah, I understand why it's doing so. It's not manipulative, but Jesus Christ, is this hard to watch. Yeah, and I was worried that I was not going to be able to, like, you know, keep a straight face, like, talking about it. Sure. I was like, I was actually worried a little bit this morning. I was like, I hope I'll be able to actually talk about this movie without, like, breaking up. Well, so I... I, I, uh, if you want to cry, look up the stories about when James Redburn died a couple sure. years oh, ago. God, yeah. He was uh, fucking one of the be- best undersung character actors yeah. I mean, he's uh, incri- in the world. To me, a very big deal as well. First, he was just in a lot of movies I saw as a kid. He Loves was off, him. you know, Independence Day, like things like that. Like, you know, um, the game. The I, game. So good in the game. I got to work with him. As a kid, him. I loved the game. <laughs> oh, I still love the game. <laughs> no, the game rules. Um, I got to uh, work with him on the failed Chris Gethard sitcom Big Lake. Oh, yeah, of course. He was Chris the dad, right? father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, which was a multi-camera show, so I wasn't scenes with him, but everyone's there all the time. They're just hanging out. But then when I had to go in to do ADR, they were running way behind, and he was the person before me in the sign-in sheet. Right. And I just sat there and talked to him for like 85 minutes 
which uh, they're the times that I uh, feel most confident in my decision to pursue acting is when I get to just talk to like a just total consummate pro, right. nice Who's person. Been everywhere and like worked that, with a zillion people and, and just yeah. hear their stories about everything. Yeah. Um, but when he died, he wrote letters to his children oh, yeah. that were right. published yeah. that are unbelievable. Yeah. Are just some of the most elegant, graceful. Uh, uh, he also wrote his own obituary. That's that's what I'm thinking of. I'm sorry. That's what I'm thinking of. It's his own obituary where where people talk about like, oh, he died gracefully. You know, he 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 faced. His oncoming death with grace. And so often I'm like, we want to reduce these things to these narratives. Who is graceful in the face of death? But then you read something like this, and, and it is astonishing. Anyway, parallel to this movie and this emotion, the opposite end of that spectrum, the scene where they invite them over for dinner and they're trying to sell them on the effectiveness right. as the oil, you know. Which and it's a scene point, that begins, and it's a very friendly... Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they've already had tension right. back and yeah. forth with this sure. couple. They proactively reach out. They're so happy that they're being involved into something. Then they get there and they realize that the group is a little bit more emotional support group for the parents dealing with these things than trying to find a cure for the children. Because everyone has told them it's impossible. It's two years. You're done. There's no sake in fighting it. The best thing your kid can do is uh, be another data point. So just figure out how to not let your relationship fall apart. (laughs) You know? And Sarandon has that thing where it's like I have not heard one person say anything about their kids. And Martindale is the one person who they kind of relate to who's similarly bullheaded. Yeah. Right. Um, and uh, they're going back and forth with Reborn and his wife. They make this slight breakthrough with the first version of The Oil, right? Yeah. Where it's like – Before you say that, yeah. though, this film does – I mean the, here's, here's, how, here's how good and effective this film is. This film includes the line – but what about the children? Won't somebody think of the children? <laughs> right. And it works. It fucking right. works. And it doesn't sound like a Simpsons character. Yeah. Right. Right. It does so many things like that. I mean, yeah, you true. have a scene where the mob is standing up and <laughs> right. going, we demand the oil! Give yeah. us the oil! <laughs> like, it's like this, this film could have Chappie, and it would be perfect. Like, it'd be like, yep, there's Chappie. Of course, we all maybe chat. He was part of uh, synthesizing the oil. Yeah. You have to give him an appearance. You know? Bilga, I, I think you might have just added something to the blank check vernacular. There are certain terms that guests have granted us that we then apply to uh-huh. other movies. I think the Chappie test is one of them. Right? Could Chappie be in this movie and not it's upset its tonal balance? <laughs> Would Chappie disrupt the ecosystem of this movie? Oh, and look, many great films could not survive a Chappie. Oh, yeah. It is not the only litmus test that matters, but yeah. it is a test of a certain type of control and conviction. And I think sincerity that even Chappie. <laughs> Bram Stoker's Dracula could pull off a chappy. You think it could? I think it could. Be- just because of tonal control, not because it's It's got perfect. amazing tonal control. Yeah. Um, yeah. That Reborn scene where, you know, it's like, okay, they seem to be on good terms again. These people have sort of uh, bristled at any time that they've tried to suggest any kind of unconventional methods pushing back against the system. But it seems to be friendly. Then they bring up the oil and, and Reborn and wife just sort of go like, look, you understand how these things work. Uh, big business. Uh, this is the. It takes this much time. You have to invest this much money. This and that. And Nolte and Sarandon push back in the way they do in the self righteous, like not without my child kind yeah. of way. And Reborn just lets loose on them, not with anger, but just with pure frustration of like, do you not understand how fucking difficult right. my life has been? Right. Yeah, I I've understand. Had three kids. I've had three of these. I yeah. understand how frustrated you are. 
I went through the same fucking thing. Right. Like, welcome to the club. Now add two. That's been my goddamn life. I don't have the bandwidth to deal with this. I don't have the bandwidth to try and fail anymore. Yeah. Right. And it's right. such an the, empathetic thing. The horrible thing. concept of, like, allowing yourself hope again. Like, right. you know, like, which yeah. just seems so frightening. Right. Where, like, in movies like this, it is very easy to turn those people into villains to be like, why are they being so unimaginative and stubborn? But the reality is, it's really fucking difficult to believe in something. Oh, yeah. It's like the most painful goddamn thing in the world. And it's, I imagine, a billion times more painful when the thing you're believing in is what you have been told is a completely incurable terminal illness. The other thing that we haven't talked about that I think this movie does so elegantly is the way it uses times and when yeah. it employs its intertitles yeah, about yeah. time passing. Right. And how much of the movie goes on where it's just updating the month and the year and how long it takes until they make it clear 12 months after diagnosis. I mean, there's a lot of restraint. Where it's like a case study. Right. right? Yeah. And it reminds me of Wendy and Lucy where she keeps on going back to the imagery of right. uh, her ledger. And you keep on seeing the numbers and being so aware mm -hmm. of exactly how much money Michelle Williams has mm -hmm. and how much everything's going to cost so that every decision that is made in the film – you have that info just constantly pounded back into your brain. And the way they just – because at a certain point it gets abstract. You're like, okay, we're what? We're December of 84, but when did this start? I'm forgetting how much time passed. And I was thinking, oh, it's been three or four years. Somehow this kid is outlasting the diagnosis. And then that title card comes in like halfway through that is 12 months after diagnosis. Right. Right. Uh, the sister shows Nolte the picture of the three of them on the beach and goes like – do you remember that was 21 months ago? I mean, all these things where it, it's how I imagine uh, it feels to be in a position like this where the days just feel endless, where life just slows down, you know, yeah. and it feels like you've been stuck in this forever. And as you're coming up against, well, you know, the prognosis they gave him was 24 months so now we're 18 months after diagnosis. Now we're 20 months after diagnosis. Yeah. The second we crack 20, you're like, he could just go at any moment. Yeah. It's really elegant the way he does it. Yeah. And, and which is why all the people that, that they interact with along the way gain such significance, especially once they start helping them. Like, I mean, Sotheby is a perfect example. I mean, he becomes the hero of the movie in that yeah. in that little scene. I'm popping off to the shops, I'll yeah. see you later. Yeah. Oils um, on the desk. Yeah, like everybody who helps them, it just feels like such a huge monumental thing they've sure. done when they're just like, we have the oil. Yeah. Or, you know, I I I have three dogs that lack mile in, like sure. we just there. Or even like the the little um the the Polish rat study that they yeah. find. It just feels like this monumental thing and it's right. shot yes. with like this you know like this heroic crane yeah and then running, what, what's you know? that the scene the medical conference where the, the Japanese doctor is mm -hmm. speaking and it's like almost a freaking like Bond movie or like right. a Tom Clancy movie or something like right. you know, this thrilling conference in this other language even though it's uh, literally uh, right. simultaneously bribing everyone with perfect pasta dinners yeah. but yeah. it's also interesting because you'll see that you see that you know that, that I think this is that one that conference where they're all sitting there and they're talking and then the camera tracks, I believe, and you realize they're still in the hospital and outside there's a corridor and there's like two sick kids being like walking yeah. down the corridor. And it's like, like, let's never forget what this is actually about. Like he doesn't allow you to forget that and that's really important. There is a thing I love that movies can do where they 
get you to acclimate to a normal you never thought you would have accepted right, at right, the beginning. Right, right. So when at, at the beginning, the, um, the symptoms that Lorenzo is experiencing are really treated one by one. And mm-hmm. you're watching a very, very subtle, gradual sort of diminishing, right? Where every single little thing he loses makes a big impact. Right. And the scene where he's coming down the stairs and he can't speak and she has to translate him. And it's the first time in the movie where he hasn't really been coherent yeah. to anyone other than his parents. Hits you hard. And then it being Martindale's son in the door frame, yep. holding the basket. That scene oh. is insanely. It's yeah. all, I mean, That's everyone right. remembers, I think, has some experience as a kid. When you're right, you see someone who's ill in a way you've right. never understood right. before. You, you right. don't know how to deal with it. It's a thousand times worse if uh, you know that you have the same disease that this kid is just a year yeah. ahead of you on. But then when, you know, an hour later into the movie, Martindale comes over and the kid is shotgun in her truck. In the truck, yeah. And she goes like he's having a bad day. And Susan Sarandon walks over to him very calmly. And whereas Margot Martindale is clearly equally uncomfortable sure. yeah. at Lorenzo coming down the stairs and not being able to speak, she's now at the state of resignation that Sarandon was at with Lorenzo. And Sarandon is so past that. She is completely unaffected by the fact that now Margot Martindale's son is starting to show those symptoms of losing his sort of verbal ability mm-hmm. because she's just like, I remember this. And it gets to a point where you go, God, I wish we were still at that stage of the movie. Right, right. We're 40 minutes past him being able to talk, period. The idea yeah. of this thing that previously was heartbreaking and was yeah. too uncomfortable to watch now seeming like a respite. Oh, yeah. Is insane. Uh, the shot of the kids coming out of school yeah. and, you know, tracks to the house, to the window you know, beyond which, like, Lorenzo's lying in yeah. bed, you know, basically dying. Um, you know, which echoes the shot earlier of, of the kids coming out of school and Lorenzo was one of the kids. You yeah. Know? There's that amazing shot, too. It's I, their holiday party. The scene that canonically makes this a great Christmas oh, movie. Oh, the, the, the Santa coming to the, you know, falling yeah. in, yes. into the camera. It's great. But then there's also that scene where she's, like, entertaining guests and mm-hmm. she's telling a story and it's deep focus of the windows right, behind right, her right. and you see all the kids playing in the snow and Lorenzo riding by in the bicycle and then one kid running off in his direction and then yeah. everyone running off in his direction mm-hmm. and the frame becomes completely empty until the girl runs through the door and is like, he's bleeding a lot. Yeah. There's something Ugh. very, I mean, it's, it's, it's like a horror it's, film. Yeah. I was going to yeah. say. Yeah. I mean, that's, he's using the tools of yeah. horror It's something like that in... Uh, yeah, I mean, Twin Peaks has that too. Yeah. You know, the first episode of Twin Peaks. Yeah. It, it's one of the most unsettling episodes yeah. of TV ever. Yeah. He, he strikes it's such so sad. Yeah. Lynch movies are so sad. I think people underrate how yeah. fucking sad they are, like in a good way. You yeah. Know, like that. Mulholland like, Drive could have could have pulled a chappy. 100%. <laughs> yeah. One, I'm still thinking chappy about Chappie could have said Silencio. Right. Silencio, I am consciousness. Uh, chappy loves Silencio. <laughs> Mommy loves Chappie. What's he up to, Bond Camp? Chappie? Oh. Uh, Chappie. He has something, right? Isn't there something? He just announced a new I feel like he's always announcing that he's going to, like, restart some franchise. you're forgetting. He made something, right? The RoboCop thing. He was supposed to do RoboCop, and it was the Halloween Hmm. Superman Returns style. It's a direct sequel to only the first one. one. Peter Weller's back, and Newmeyer is writing the script. Uh, He has now quit that. Thank God. I feel like they hired someone else who is not the right choice because the only right choice for that is him, Paul Verhoeven. Sure. Uh, but he announced he's doing some new low-budget like horror, horror movie. Yeah. Fine. 
Um, and Chappie has not booked anything since that movie came out. I think out. he's running in South Carolina or something, right? Like he's going to try and <laughs> he's stealing know. votes away from Bernie. <laughs> Also, often going to movie theaters and pointing out when Leonardo DiCaprio shows up on yeah, screen. Yeah, right. He, he's he's going to be at every first cow screening to tell you that that's the first cow. Yeah. Uh, I also, believe there literally is a scene in First Cow where someone says, it's the first cow. I just want to check my notes here quickly. It also just says that uh, Chappie loves mommy and mommy loves Chappie. It's, I, haven't, I haven't seen Chappie. Uh, I saw it uh, a second time recently. And Why? Chappie, uh, I was with my friends who I usually, uh, when we hang okay, out. Okay, so it was like a fun thing to do. We were like, what's the weirdest you thing you can watch You weren't just like Netflix? flipping channels and sort of like, well, settle this into This is like the Chappie. friend group who I made watch Old Dogs and Book of Henry. Like all my curio right. movies where I'm like, I really think this needs to be studied. And uh, like Old Dogs and Book of Henry, watching Chappie the second time has that weird effect where you're like, well, now all of this feels less weird because I've just accepted that Chappie is Chappie. The first time you're watching Chappie, and most people never make it past the first time, you go, I can't accept any of this. And the second time you go into it, you go, well, of course, this is yeah. Chappie, and Chappie loves mommy, mommy loves Chappie, and Chappie's a real gangster. It's like you're in a film directed by George Miller. It's a given. Where, it's where you're, 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 the Overton window of what is acceptable has just completely— That's what Miller, Miller's pushing that window, yeah. baby. I but, mean, it's just, Fury Road is all about that. 100%. You know, It's just like the things that— the are best now thing normal. about Fury Road yeah. is right. Is they're just like yeah, we have to go to Gastown, and I'm like, I guess they got to go to Gastown, and I guess I know what Gastown is. Yeah, like you know, the, that's what I love. But as opposed to someone like Blomkamp, you know, someone does this, and, and I'm like, yeah, David's right. miming the spray. Yeah, uh, Blomkamp, who Chappie is him trying to do like I'm going to mix 18 different tones and emotions and genres at the same time. So glad we're talking about Chappie and can't pull it off. Uh, sure. George Miller, it, it is. Should have made Chappie. Should have made Chappie. Chappie. He probably would have nailed it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, He he nailed a talking pig movie. Exactly. He didn't nail anything. Part of a talkie, but a a talkie piggy? We're going to talk about it. Uh, We're going to talkie piggy about it. Negative five comedy points. (laughs) Uh, It it, it is bizarre for someone who is such a manic filmmaker in so many ways to also be so thoughtful. Sure. And it is contradictory in a way that I can never quite understand how he pulls off that balance. I guess I don't really think of him as magic. He's high energy, but he his movies do always feel very considered, even like the Thunderdomes of the world. Or but whatever. I, th- I yeah. think they are very manic energy. and yeah. considered at the same time, which yeah. those two things seem mm-hmm. counterintuitive. Um, are there any other things we're forgetting to talk we about? We should play the, the movie, the box office game. But yeah, sure. Bale, is there any, right, yeah, as the sort of having seen it so many times, are there little details that we haven't hit on? Oh, God. Professor um, Emeritus. It's fine if you don't No, I mean, it's, it's, you know, there's all, these, all this, like, I was actually going to look this up because I seem to recall, I mean, there's that scene where uh, Amore arrives um, in D.C. In, in their Dulles airport, and it's shot, like a scene out of an opera. Yes, that seems very interesting because yeah. this is this is a character from the the, the Comoro Islands yeah. who is like Lorenzo's a friend in the first ten minutes and they fly a kite together and yeah. then he doesn't reappear until like basically two hours into the movie, like yeah. almost near the end. Yeah, and apparently this is a you know this is a real part real of their person, real part of the story. Right, right. But um, but it re- it reminds me of the scene earlier where um, where Nolte goes to uh, Peter Ustinov. At the opera house, right. and he's and and Nolte's wearing the same overcoat. I love a confrontation. Um, in the, opera house. <laughs> uh, the confrontation in the opera house is great, but then you see the scene later on. You know, it's kind of a throwaway shot of Amore arriving at the airport, and Nolte is wearing the same outfit. And I believe 
Dulles Airport, I think you can correct me on this. I, 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 I didn't get a chance to look it up, but I think it was designed by the same person who designed the Metropolitan Opera House. Interesting. Um, okay. And it was the first time after having grown up in D.C., lived in D.C., the first time it, – it wasn't until I saw Lorenzo's Oil that I thought to myself, my God, Dulles Airport looks like an opera house. Um, Eero Saarinen, the Finnish architect who designed the Gateway Arch and Mm -hmm. who designed the TWA, the famous TWA flight center at JFK, you know, the really cool, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Did, but did he design the opera house? He, maybe he didn't. Maybe not. Okay. Maybe I'm thinking uh, But he has designed opera houses. As you do. Coup de gras for me with this movie, the thing that maybe blew me away the most just because... I went, how is it possible that this movie is nearly 30 years old and every film of its ilk has not instituted this choice, has not followed this example? When this movie gets to its end sort of title cards explaining what happened after the film ended, it starts with the preface, this film was completed in 1992. Right. In December of 1992. Yeah. As of the time of its release. It contextualizes. Yeah, yeah, no, I get you. Yeah, yeah. It's not. It's not impre- It's not like Lorenzo is still, you know, alive and doing great things. Like it's very specifically like here's the update, folks. Yeah, Which, and, and it also makes you aware. I mean, you, you've been aware that you're watching a movie because it's such a self conscious yeah, right, right, film. Right. But, um, but it is. Yeah, it's it's kind of like, yeah. Here's we're in the theater. This is the movie. Right. This is when we finished it. Here's here's what's going on. The movie's now. just the story. This is our understanding. I mean, it's placing you in. There's so many fact-based movies where I think even if the craft is incredibly strong, they can become invalidated over time because our understanding of the actual events right. changes so radically that it's hard to divorce the film from that. And the movie is very smartly like setting up a frame around itself, yeah. saying like, "This is the film made." The time that we made it with our understanding yeah. and what results we had seen. As of the making of this film, we call them computers. Right. right. <laughs> L- Lorenzo <laughs> lived to 30, yes. which was like yeah. an additional 20 yes, years past his life his expectancy. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. father outlived he, him, the mother He died. outlived mom. Yeah. Yes. Which is also – I mean there's also like – it's – I mean that's – obviously as a child, you, you know, you're supposed to outlive your mom. Yeah. But right. – but like but she the, died relatively young. She was sixty one. She she yeah. was she died relatively young. But also like he was so dependent on right. these yes. people that yes. like you know the fact that he lost his mom while he was still alive. Just I mean just ah, can you just imagine how hard no, that must have been? It's, no, it's very very yeah yes. yeah it's very difficult to reckon with. Yeah, and then I, after yeah. I remember I remember his I remember their both their not mom's obituary, but I remember reading Lorenzo's obituary and then Augusto's obituary. Right. Um, which was not long after Lorenzo's died. Right? Yeah, Lorenzo he, died in 2008, and Augusto died in 2013. Right. He, mo- he, uh, he like, moved back to he Italy. Moved back to Italy. I mean, it's just kind of, of like yes. he was basically there yeah. to just uh, make sure Lorenzo was okay for as long as he could be. Um, let's and on that note, let's play the box office. Game. Okay. So this film opened limited, uh, you know, basically New Year's yeah. uh, 1992. Um, so you know, it's not in the top five. And it did like one black hat. I liked it. To- it totaled um, seven million dollars. Yeah, so it's about yeah, a black so hat. It, it black hatted yeah. it, it. It did a black yeah. hat. It yeah. was. A, it was a. But but cost a lot less than a black. That's hat. true. It cost about like one quarter black. But it still it still cost thirty million dollars. Yeah, which is a sizable enough budget that it was viewed as just that is unequivocally a flop. It didn't do well. Yeah. Um, number one at the box office in its eighth week, a huge, huge, huge hit. Children's film. 
I saw it in theaters. Oh, congratulations. In eight weeks, it's made $114 million. It's very well remembered. Is it a Disney film? It is. Is it an animated film? It is. Is it Aladdin? It's Aladdin. The highest grossing film of its year. The first film my brother saw in a theater. One of the first films that I consciously remember being like excited to see. Yeah. Like I was aware of its release. I remember my dad coming home like with tickets, physical tickets that he'd bought like on the way home. Yeah. And we took my brother in five minutes and he put my dad's coat over his head and fell asleep. Wow. Yeah. I have, I have a similar memory. I, I, I was uh, uh, three years old or whatever, but I, I remember going to the theater to see it. I remember looking at the poster as I walked into the theater and I remember going, oh, Robin Williams is playing the genie. Really? Yeah, what a weird fucking weird three-year-old. Oh, they got Robin? That's cool. <laughs> Bill, do you care about Aladdin? Do you like Aladdin? I like Aladdin. Memory I, of Aladdin. I, was in, I was in college. I know. Yeah. yeah. Um, but Aladdin was actually another movie that we reviewed in the... Um, sure. In your arts in, in our arts publication. publication. Possibly in the same issue that my... Uh, your Lorenzo's essay. Possibly. Right? But it was not actually... I, I didn't write the review. My, my co-editor wrote the review under a pseudonym. Oh. Which is weird. I don't, I don't a dot Latin. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I am not a huge fan. Oh, that's such a weird opinion. a thing that people will drag me for. Yeah, you should get dragged for that all the way to the Cave of Wonders. Here's here's the most surprising Griffin take of all time. Right. I think the '90s Disney Renaissance is overrated. Now, let me ask you this. I'm not. Oh, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Have I you seen of... the Thief and the Cobbler? Yes, I have. Yeah, I mean, the thing I remember about Aladdin. I mean, I I, I liked Aladdin when yeah. it came out. But I remember at the time of Roger Rabbit, um, Time or Newsweek or one of these magazines did a feature on Richard Williams. Yeah, and I yes. remember a still from The Thief and the Cobbler. Yeah. And then when Aladdin came out, I was like, oh, this must be The Thief and the Cobbler because sure. that guy looks exactly like the, the guy. And, right. and, and it wasn't. And no. there was no Richard w- Williams mentioned anywhere. And I remember, like, for, and this was obviously, you know, Wondering. pre-internet. Yeah. For years, I was like, did I imagine this other movie called The Thief and the Cobbler? <laughs> yeah. Like, Richard Williams, Roger Rabbit. Like, there, I had no reference things to look at. I was just like, I, I must have dreamt this. So I must have dreamt this other movie. It and was years later, I was like, right, 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 right. right. This is, this is a real. whole thing. Absolutely right. corporate espionage. Yeah. It is like Ants in a Bug's Life, oh, except he never got right. to finish I mean, his movie. Yeah. Well, but they were also, like, a lot of, like... The I mean, designs are the same. It, and and yeah. a lot of the animators who worked yes, on... That was the other thing. I mean, everybody and his mom worked on Thief in the Call because it took that's, so long. That's the thing. Some of them moved yeah. to the, Disney The Lion King was literally, like... Uh, intellectual theft. Yeah, it was right. them seeing something and being like, let's copy that. Right. <laughs> Aladdin is a little more like, that was just, I mean, that movie, The Thief and the Cobbler is from like the 60s, right? Yeah. Like the, well, that, he was working on stew. it for 30 yeah. years right. and yeah. he, he was self-financing it so right. he would only be able to hire animators to work for like two months and then he'd be like, well, yeah. maybe a year or two for now I'll call you back. Yeah. And they started going like, can you draw like the Sultan that you've been drawing for him? The thing I feel about the Disney Renaissance that the maybe, Cobbler maybe you're, slaps so sure. Maybe your problem yeah. is the music, I don't know, because to me, the thing I like about those, th- yeah. is that I think Ashman is just a genius, and that's why, like, I love those three movies, because of his lyrics. Like, that's, those are the, that's the thing. Look, I me. was the biggest Disney kid. Sure. I don't want to, 25 years later, now assume the role of the Gen Xers who were mm. pooing these movies at the time. Right. All the songs work. I, I cannot deny that. Right. I am not right. the Grinch, okay? I love these movies. I have great fondness for them. Mm-hmm. Rewatching them all pretty recently as so I have on the Disney, Disney Plus. Pluses, right. And even like eight years ago when they were all on Netflix, I gave them all a run through. Right. I just find them so unnuanced in their storytelling and so manipulative. Mm-hmm. We should we should 
talk about that. Sometime. Well, I don't know how we would. At some point. Um, Walt Disney's blank check. The thing yeah. is, I don't really like the Lion King. Like that's where they lose me. Is Lion King and all. You know, I do the Ashran movies. What do you guys think of like some of the? I mean, like Hunchback. What do you guys think of that? That's okay. Here's my last Hunchback. That's my favorite one. Hunchback is great. Yeah, Hunchback's great. Hunchback is best. Disney's Renaissance. As long as we're not counting Emperor's New Groove. No, that for me is post Renaissance. That's its own thing. That's, yeah, right. But that's <laughs> Emperor's New Groove and Lilo and Stitch. I like more than any sure, of the sure, '90s, sure. '80s yeah. movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think of that era, uh, Hunchback's the best one. Hunchback and I, is great, I think yeah. the other ones, Hunchback's the songs great. are undeniable. But I don't love the movies. Well, the way. thing Hunchback has also, for some reason, the score clicks in that one. Like the songs click in that one better than they do for me. And I don't know, Pocahontas. I'm trying to think of the other like late night Mulan. Uh, I don't like take the Pocahontas music. as my number two. That's, I mean, I was never a huge fan of the songs. I mean, I was, I was, it's I was okay. the Gen Xer who was like, yeah, whatever, the, the right. Disney songs. Yeah. That that wasn't a thing right. for me. But um, rewatching Beauty and the Beast recently for a piece, you know, it, it that piece was really good. By the way. Thanks. Um, it it really like brought back how how good it is. Beauty and, I, the, I, Beast Beauty is and the Beast is really good. good, and the yeah. score it's easily yeah. the best. Quite, quite right. uh, beside this, this, I mean, the songs are are fine I, again, but. The score is great. The score too. is fucking incredible. That opening with dun, the score. Dun, oh, dun, dun, yes, dun, the score is Ashton yeah. Mankin are geniuses. Uh, yes, uh, especially Ashton. They could. Yeah, I love Mankin. Can I think they pull off a Chappie now. in Beauty and the Beast. Hundred percent. It'd be great. Yes. I love Chappie in Beauty and the Beast. Put him in right now. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. There's just. Shit, a, I'm just. I wish we could figure out a Muscle way. Muscle and Clarence. We figured this they, out. But they did Aladdin though. That covers enough of it. Yeah. But they did. Didn't they? Didn't they? They not did Great do Mouse Aladdin? Detective, Little Mermaid, right. Aladdin. They do do Aladdin. Hercules, I can't remember how it trades off. Right. Treasure Planet. It's perfect. Yeah. Right. It's the I'd entire rise and fall. It it who, starts pre Renaissance right, ends post Renaissance. And Moana. Be- Beauty and the Beast are the ones it, who never really did another oh, big it's movie Mink- again. M- Minkoff. No, Minkoff is Lion King. I no. just interviewed these guys. No, <laughs> Lion King is 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 Beauty and the Beast, Trousdale and Wise. Yeah, or is, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, that's yeah. it's those two, yeah, right? right. Yes, and yeah. then Minkoff is Minkoff is the Lion King guy, right? Right. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, um, we'll do we'll obviously do our whole director thing doesn't work quite as well with the Disney animated movies because they were you'd have to you'd have to do like a, a Katzenberg. We're gonna you know, do Musker and Clements because they I'm all for it. I'm all for it. I'm calling it right now. We'll do Musker and Clements April 2027. Great. No, we'll do it earlier than that. All right, number two. Yeah. Um, good movie. Uh, just like a real fucking movie that you watch on cable all the time, and like hmm, old dogs. <laughs> I wonder what you think of this movie. I genuinely okay. have no idea. It's like a really solid Hollywood movie with big movie stars, written by a big shot screenwriter. Big, big shot director or is the screenwriter. He's the a main big attraction? director at the time. He's become a bit of a laughing stock. But is like, it a Reiner? Uh, yeah, I was going to say. Is it a few good men? I, I was yeah. going to ask, is, is it a few good men? Yeah. yeah. I was for, at first, I thought maybe Sneakers, but. No. Well, Sneakers is a 92. But, yeah. but Sneakers uh, had number two 16 screenwriters, right? Because it was Walter Parks and his writing partner. Really? Yeah. Uh, I think, okay, I think, right. Um, I mean, I know it was directed by Phil Alden Robinson. But, but, I mean, if it were Sneakers, David's hint would have been what movie fully thrusts <laughs> his consciousness into you? Because, by the way, I'm no longer saying that things fuck. <laughs> right. You're using In honor the of Emperor Palpatine, yeah, I'm right. now saying that things thrust their consciousness upon you. <laughs> um, what do you think of A Few Good Men? I genuinely wonder. I really like A Few Good Men. I did not so love A Few Good Men at the time. Yeah. Um, I, uh, a few years ago, I had to do a... Uh, I had to do a Tom Cruise ranking mm. for um, hey. for uh, sometimes Rolling Stone. they just need some grist for and, the mill. You know? and, and it was great. And, no, it was, it was great because I had like six, seven months to do this piece, possibly sure. even longer. And I just rewatched every time, even the ones I'd seen a bunch of times. I just rewatched everything, right, Gentleman in order. Tom. And 
and I just in order is fun. And yeah, I and yeah. I really just got this like renewed appreciation for Tom Cruise I mean, he is, and the he's choices he a made. Very impressive. And a few yeah. good men. Right, it was in there. I was like. Why don't they fucking make movies like this yeah, anymore? That is uh, now like, when you watch please, it. Right. Somebody fucking make practically movies like, avant-garde. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Reiner, though, I mean, I, you guys have his done run. Right? Uh, you know, up Th- until that point is, that is, is one incredible. of the greatest runs yeah. ever. It's absolutely I mean, bulletproof. Right. Right. I mean, except for not. Uh, except for North, but then he comes right. back briefly. But look here, North mm. is the exact kind of bad movie I want. To yeah, cover North's on this at podcast. least interesting. North, right. I'm all in on. It's everything after American President. Right. Doesn't exist, and there are eight of them. Yeah. That's there's our even problem. more. There's I mean, so many. Well, there's one written by his son. There are like three Woody Harrelson political dramas. Ghosts of Mississippi is okay. That one's is all right. It, right? Ghosts of Mississippi sure. is the one right after American President. Yeah. And oh, then, okay. And that's then there's 98? the uh, 96. And then there's Story of Us. And that's sort of when he just. Right. I don't know. If his to make career very ended at Story films. of Us, we would do it no yeah. question. Right. Everything in the 21st you, century, we don't want to. You have talk. to do that one with like Morgan Freeman on an island. Yeah, right? Magic of Bell Isle. Yeah. Right. Got, and like the four LBJ biopic right. type movies. Right. He's yeah. got a kid romance called Flipped. That's he right. took over as the director of Rumor Has It. Yeah. Three weeks into list. production. I mean, the bucket list. Bucket list might be oh, the worst the film list. ever made. We just can't all right. do it. Yeah. All right, all right, all right, all right. But okay. anyway, uh, a few good men, huge hit. It's made seventy-seven million dollars in a month. Like it's, it was a big fucking movie. I mean, people went to see. This was the run where he couldn't miss. Where it's like Spinal Tap, yeah. Princess Bride, uh, Stand by Me, Stand by Me. Like the guy just every time hit straight bullseyes. Number three at the box office. It's okay. A kids movie. Uh, it's a sequel. It's a colossal hit. It's a colossal. It's a bit. Of a rejection of its fundamental premise. Honey, I blew up the kid? No. <laughs> but it's also just a complete repeat of the first movie. Interesting. I mean, this is... A, you know what I mean? Like, he's yes. not actually title, but, I mean, you I are mean, just repeating I, the he's movie. He's not actually Adam's family values. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about one of my favorite phenomenons. Right. I mean, I always talk about Big Mama's House 2 and how much perplexes me. <laughs> right, right. How you can't replicate the exact same circumstances. Okay, so it rejects the premise, but it has It doesn't the same reject title. it at all, though. It's just like when you think about it, you're like, oh, okay. The title no longer applies, really. It doesn't fully apply. I mean, they add a subtitle to make it make sense. So it's not a full bait. You're not saying the rules don't apply, <laughs> they're partially apply. I've gotten myself in the weeds here. You really? This thing made $173 million, and that's probably half of what the original made. The original was such a big hit. Wow. A big star? I mean, at the time, I guess so. He's famous for these movies. He's famous for these movies. And he made other movies. Like, he yeah. was a big star when we were kids. Sure. He would be above a title. He'd be above I mean, a title. I mean, this is an obvious movie. Uh, Colossal. Uh, come on, think, how many movies sweaty. made, like, $350 million in the early it. 90s? Like a family movie that a made family $350 movie. Come on. million. Dollars. It's on Terminator 2 Judgment no, Day. No, no, family movie. I mean, this movie's about a kid. This movie's about a kid. It's a kid star. Oh, it's Home Alone 2 Lost in New York. Right. He's not home alone. No, correct. <laughs> I mean, like another. I I watch both of those on Disney Plus. He's city alone. I yes. guess. Well, it's like the, the, the title itself, you know, yeah. like right. Home Alone, Lost in New York. Correct. It's like you know, I, he's unparented. New York yes. alone. I, I, <laughs> called New York alone. I had never watched. That sounds like an Ed Burns movie. Yeah, I was gonna say. New York, I was gonna say it's like. Hey, Tom, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty New sure York Tom DeSillo made that movie sometime <laughs> right. in 1997. <laughs> I had never watched two in its entirety. Had just seen many parts of it on on cable. Oh, that's the one I've seen forty times. Well, that's for I've some seen reason. Yeah. Elements of it so many times. I'd never watched it straight through. Those weren't movies I grew up on. Mm. Uh, my parents were anti. They thought they were very cynical. Right? They thought they were cynical and violent. 
Um, Which they are. But but it, it, as with my Disney Renaissance uh, uh, sort of uh, flush, uh, Disney Plus reopening a lot of these films that were not very streamable for a while, I was like, uh, I'm going to watch both Home Alones back to back. Yeah. And mostly with the test of, I know everyone makes fun of this, right. but how do they fucking justify it happening again? And how do they, they fucking the justify that It's a that connecting type? flight or they something. They just have so many children. They do have way too many children. They should call the herd. I, it's the one scene I love in Home Alone 2 where they're like meeting with the person and they start to realize like, wait, is this a pattern? Right. It's funny. The detective is like, She's this has happened funny. multiple times. Catherine Harrell. She's pretty. All right. All right. Number uh, four is another huge hit of 1992. A, a fucking phenomenon. Not a good movie in my opinion. Not a good movie. But a huge hit. Uh, like a mm, music drama? It's a music drama. I guess. It's the bodyguard. The bodyguard. Yeah. How do you describe the bodyguard? Yeah, it's a music drama. It's like a romantic drama. Yeah, romantic drama. Right. Yeah, romantic action. Movie. It's not a good movie. It's not. It's not. But are we allowed to say that? I like think I feel we like are. I feel like people love that movie now. Do they? I don't know. Do, do they just love Whitney? Like, is it just yeah, the sort of Whitney song. Power? Maybe. Uh, Mick Jackson film. Yeah. You know, not like a... But, if, but a project that was passed around... 100%. And, like, and was one of those, like, yeah. they put a million people into both roles. Yeah, and, right. and, 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 like, I think the reason he has the haircut is because it was originally supposed to be Steve McQueen, but somehow his hair stayed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, because they would it's just like, keep pasting people's faces It's, it's like Alien it. 3. They're all bald because originally they were supposed to be monks or something like right, that. Yes, right, right, right. right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't like The Bodyguard that much. Yeah. I remember, I've seen it like once. It's very it's, long. There Rarely, and I guess this, has, like to a do, turgid, this has to do with it being Christmas time, but rarely do we get a top five that is just such a perfect snapshot of this, this is the year. year, sure. Yeah. All right, number five. Um, yeah, boy, what is to this going to break the pattern? I just no, no, I don't think so. Uh, it's a bad movie. It's um, bad. No good, very bad. Don't do it. Uh, so I feel like sort of a mocked movie at the time. Um, a star we've discussed that Miller works with a lot. Oh, Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson. It's nineteen ninety-two, and the movie is mocked. I feel like it's this was a, a, a people made fun of this movie. Um, it's a did, did period this... piece. Oh, it's Hamlet. We just it's not Hamlet. It's I think it's the screenwriting debut of a a big name. Huh. Like he goes on to be so, a. So it's not Maverick, written it's by not William Maverick. Goldman. No. <laughs> it's not Maverick, yeah. which is a perfectly fun movie. Yeah. Nineteen ninety. No, it's not his screenwriting debut. He'd already written a movie or two. Jesus. Hmm. Um. Fuck, I don't fucking know. It's Gibson. It has like a weird sort of sci-fi twist. Oh, is it uh, Forever Young? Forever Young. Written by J.J. Abrams. Yeah. I remember uh, seeing that in theaters. I've never seen Forever Young. How is it? Um, I, I remember not liking it very much. Uh, another very romantic Forever movie. Forever Young. Right, right. Very, uh, another very Hollywood romantic. used to make those with grown-ups. Now it only makes them with like young people, I feel yeah. like. You know, more makes the sort of like. Yeah, I mean, I think it barely makes them even with young right, people. Right, even with young yeah, people. Yeah, it's like but romance like, is. You know. you know, when you think of the far and aways, right? You know, right, right yeah. like just like a right. quote unquote chick flick. That stuff yeah. only exists uh, a years long serialized television. Yeah, sure. Like right. Outlander 
single-handedly has to carry the weight of all adult romance films that right. used to exist. It is one of those genres wh- that I often looked on with suspicion when those movies were coming out, and now like, I uh, would really just love... You would, like, just give me three of those yeah, just, yeah, right. yeah, seriously, yeah, just know. please bring back... Nights in Rodan. Yeah, <laughs> bring back the mid-range. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Diane Lane's whole touchstone run. I know. Yeah. 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 We were talking about this when Martha, we did... Martha, bring back Martha. Oh. We were talking about this when we did the... Um, uh, Manchurian Candidate remake for Demi where there was like so much cynicism to like why won't Hollywood uh, stop remaking these classics oh by the way I did the, an interesting thing about the Manchurian Candidate remake yeah. I was listening to your podcast about it I don't know if sure. I, 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 I don't Humble think you guys brain. but like um, the, the fact that it came right after Stepford Wives well no oh and Truth About Charlie Truth About yeah. Charlie yeah, sure. the thing about Truth About Charlie was I, I didn't listen to that episode so it's possible you discussed this you, but you would enjoy that it was originally supposed to be Will Smith yes, yes. yes. right. We about but that was a, a friend of mine was an assistant to Jonathan Demme and, she, and she, I remember she said Jonathan Demme's project is to try and make remake these classic Hollywood movies with black leads. Sure. Like he wanted to right. do that. That was his original. That, yeah. that makes so, so, much so, so, more sense as an impetus yeah. for those two movies. Yes. And it, then it's yeah. so funny that like, Wahlberg like, is the one. I know. Like, it's, it's just not like, even like, you know. Uh, yeah. well, I mean, that's a whole other thing. But yes. but it is. But in the case of Manchurian Candidates, it was Genzel very much. And Kimberly yeah, I, I, yeah, I, yeah. I think it was very much like he didn't get to do that with Truth About Charlie, so right. he's sure. trying again. That right. makes a lot of sense. It does make a lot of sense. It's fascinating. Um, here's some other movies that were in the top ten. Oh. Hoffa, which yeah. we were just talking about, a Danny DeVito miniseries. Little series for a little man. Uh, the Distinguished Gentleman. That's an Eddie Murphy goes to Congress comedy. That correct? was one yes. of those. Just I that. I feel like that was such a video store movie. I that VHS cover so burned my brain where he is lifting, the, lifting top the top off of Capitol the, Hill yeah, and he's like pulling Capitol money out of it. Yeah. I mean, pretty funny. Yeah. Have you seen The Distinguished Gentleman? I have not seen The Distinguished Gentleman. I've never movie, even come close to watching that no, movie. No, a movie I saw in theaters at this time that scared the shit out of me, Muppet Christmas Carol, Perfect incredible film. film. Masterpiece. Uh, and uh, toys, and the, one of the greatest blank checks of all, uh, Barry Levinson's toys. I like toys. Oh, toys I do too. Uh, toys, likable. Toys. I, I do too. Is, I mean, talk about a weird movie. Uh yeah, and but but also um, a huge bomb. I mean, like cannot bomb. be overstated how huge, badly that film. Do you know uh, what toys are? A huge uh. bomb that hmm? everybody thought was going to be a huge hit. Humongous. Because those trailers, people loved the trailers. Yeah, people loved the trailers. It just seemed like it had everything going for it. They were talking about how, like, Doctor Strangelove was yeah. one of their models. It just seemed like— There this, was, like, a this, Sega Genesis game. Yeah. This yes. movie was going to be, like, you know, this was going to, like, sweep the Oscars or something. Right. Like, everybody thought this was going to be a huge hit, and it the comes entire... out and it just, like— just Yo, People died. were disgusted. Yeah. People were like, what the fuck is they this? They were angry. Like, they yeah. were furious. And uh, anytime you got your Robin, you know, you lean too much into the child at heart thing. Sometimes uh, I feel like it's sort of like Chappie. People are just like revolted. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Chappie, though, would fit in fine in toys. 100%. <laughs> He'd waltz right in. I mean, it is a. It is, <laughs> and also, it, it, Robin Williams would do great in Chappie. 100%. Oh, yeah. 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 Great what were you going to say? Sorry. No, I was, you know, I mean, but I mean, toy, like, when toys is a great Levinson, example of tonal control. Oh, uh, yes. Diner, yes. The Natural, Young Sherlock yeah. Holmes, Tin Man, Good Morning Vietnam, Rain Man, Avalon, Bugsy. It's like, this guy could do no wrong. And he's like, I'm going to do it. Yeah. And I remember at the time I was really, <laughs> you at the time I was really down on Levinson because I hated Bugsy. I right. And Bugsy, was, it does have that kind of like 
sort of glossy, big, glossy, biopic-y. Big, but also, you know. like, it's trying to be a godfather, but it's yeah. not the godfather. It's not, it's not that good. And it's, it was also nominated for all these Oscars. It got a zillion Oscar nominations. It's, it's still Keitel's only nomination, I yeah. believe, which one of the strangest <laughs> things ever. I was watching, like, the Siskel Didn't win a single one. But I remember yeah. we were so happy one. when... Silence of the Lambs swept the yeah, Oscars yeah, yeah, because it, yeah, yeah. people really thought Bugsy was going to win. That's the thing. I was watching the Siskel Niebuhr special from that year, and they were like, well, obviously Bugsy's the front runner. Like, yeah. that's the behemoth. Um, 11 Oscar nominations, right? I yeah. think. Uh, yeah. One, two. It actually I mean, it got, did. It won for production design and costumes. Oh, right. But it got Good two one. separate uh, supporting actor nominations. Ten nominations. That's yeah, yeah. Keitel and Kingsley both nominated. Yeah. Obviously, Beatty. Director. Toback for writing it. Cinematography. Ennio Morricone's score. I mean, he really great did. Score. Yeah, he great did score. get everyone he on have, board. He should have won for score. Of course, Morricone never won anything back then because the Disney movies kept winning them. Probably. Yeah, Beauty and the Beast. Well, yeah. The, yeah. a score, score you yeah. just praised uh, to the uh, high heavens score. was the winner. A good score. Right. Yeah. Uh, and admittedly, Bugsy, terrible movie, but right. great score. Do you think Bugsy is the most tobaccian of all of Levinson's films? Oh, my God. All right. Um, Levinson <sighs> falls into that exact Rob Reiner category. It's what you're saying. Like, the thing you just outlined is an amazing blank check arc. And yeah. then there are 10 movies after that that just our ratings would crater. Right. Uh, the Humbling. Um, yeah. Interesting movie. Humbling is an interesting movie. But, I mean, how many professional critics at gunpoint would remember that in the last five years there was a Barry Levinson, Greta Gerwig, Al Pacino <laughs> Romantic I mean, I, I dramedy. I just watched it like six months ago. You're so. the one. Are you doing a Pacino or Gerwig ranking or something? No, um, but I did. I, I did rewatch it because I was uh, not rewatch it. Watch it because I was just like, what the hell? Is I didn't know about this movie. I, I saw the DVD. And I was like, yeah. what the fuck? Is That's this? the thing. It's like, how does this exist and no one's ever discussed it? Um, one crazy final thing about Toys. Toys was the root of Robin Williams suing Disney. Yeah. Because he felt he like he thought Aladdin was taking box office space from toys. Yeah, yeah. and Which, he was uh, like, "Toys is my precious it's jewel. Kind it's kind of like, my jam. yeah, when people are like, "Well, this candidate's taking votes from." I don't think I don't know if toys is taking Aladdin. Toys was Robin. The, yes, <laughs> the Bloomberg of its time. Exactly. Well, and it was also that thing that like when when Lorenzo's oil flopped, it pledged all of its delegates to that's, Aladdin. That's true. That's so true. Don't, and that is true. Don't blame Aladdin. It pledged for all toys. its oil to Aladdin. Because that lamp's empty now. Genie yes. not in it anymore. Yeah, they had to put a little oil in that lamp. <laughs> yeah. Bilga, thank you very much for being on this thank very stupid so much. show. <laughs> oh, it's a great show and what a wonderful episode. I'm just kidding. It's always a pleasure uh, when when you're on the show. Yes, thank it is. you. This was fun. Yes, um, it was fun. And, now, and I'm glad we got to engage with this movie. In, uh, me you too. Know, right. I mean, th- this is a... Uh, how many podcasts ever have any exactly. reason to Who do... Who the fuck ever talks about Lorenzo's Oil? Uh, Two-plus-hour Lorenzo's Oil episode. <laughs> Uh, Bill Guy, people should read everything you're writing on Vulture because you're one of the best people in the biz. Thank you. I, I don't know if I should. <laughs> what was I supposed to you're say? You're an something. incredible critic. Bill. You're an incredible critic. And, Amazing writer. And, yeah. Um, uh, I, I don't know. You want to plug Twitter? Oh God. Uh, That's. I hesitate to it's even my name got, on Twitter. But any, yeah, honestly. Just maybe watch just Lorenzo's log off. Yeah, watch that's Lorenzo's where you want to play. Plug that oil. Blu-ray coming soon from Kino Lore. We're hopefully right. out by the time this comes out. Hey, baby. And thank you all for listening. And please remember to rate, review, subscribe. Thanks to Andrew Gouda for our social media. Uh, Lane Montgomery for our theme song. Joe Bonapat Rounds for our artwork. Go to blankies.rat.com for some real nerdy shit. Go to patreon.com backslash blank check for special features. Our, our second uh, bonus feed. Uh, and as always... Chappie thrusts his consciousness into all of us. <laughs>